It's going to be a great show today until we start talking about the new stuff. Sprites, fake midgets, and the author of Blood and Fire, the new book on the chic, Brian Solomon, all on the program today. And to join me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you, it's midnight at the Oasis, and he's put his camel to bed, the great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. I guess... Blood and fire, it fits the Sheik, and it may fit some of the final match in AEW this week, so it's a good week to tie it all together. Well, we'll talk about AEW later. Um, it, again, from the, from the penthouse to the outhouse, but nevertheless, I don't know what we're doing here today. If I'm a little bit off, if I'm a little bit verklempt, uh, we, have, we have already, I'm going to expose our business at the top of the program, we have recorded the interview that we are going to air later on in the program with young Brian Solomon, a fascinating interview on one of the most legendary and unique individuals in all of professional wrestling history. And now we're starting the show and we're going to do this. And I have been talking so much lately. Um, we recorded the drive through this past week's drive through on Monday. And then on Wednesday and Thursday, we Hotchkiss Featherbottom and I fulfilled the cameo request from the St. Valentine's Day Massa cameos that went on sale last Sunday. We did that on Wednesday and Thursday, most of the day each. Uh, now, today is a Friday, and we're recording the experience here. And this coming Sunday... We're probably going to have to record the experience or the drive-through early because we can't do it Monday because I've been informed that my neighbor, he probably doesn't listen to this show. But just in case he does, and since he lives next door to me, and he's a nice older gentleman, I won't go in on this like I normally would, but he has erected the most massive garage that I, it's, it, it's, 55 feet by 30 feet. That's a garage for you. That's just the foundation. And, it, and now they're having the electric hooked up and they're having to run off of my pole because my pole's on our fence row. His pole to his house is all the way on the other side of his property. And then they have to dig a 200-foot trench. So they're going to come off of my pole to go back to this massive airplane hangar that he's installing. And as a result, they're going to have to cut my power off at some point on Monday. So we're, we've, we've, and that's Valentine's Day too. So I'm going to be, we're going to be sitting here, me and Stacy and Harley, all three, uh, in the dark, lighting aromatic candles. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm tied up because of what happened to me this last Tuesday, the one day off this week, day off. I never have a day off. The one peace and quiet day that I was going to have to do my my work I get up at 7 15 soon as I get out from under the cover on Tuesday morning Brian I said it's too cold in this house the fucking heat's out 
And I go down and I look at the thermostat, and sure enough, the thermostat is set at 68 and it's 65. So the heat is sti- it's just some recent time before that I've noticed it has stopped working. And I put my hand in, the, in front of the vent, sure enough, it's blowing air, but it's cold air. But fortunately, Brian, I've got some people that can get on this case. I call the folks at Tom Drexler. See, you, you live in New Jersey. You've got that brand new, big, spacious, expansive last manor, but you don't have Tom Drexler in New Jersey. If you did, you'd sleep well at night. You don't have Tom Drexler in New Jersey, do you, Brian? No, but you're making me wish I did. That's because Tom Drexler lives down here in Louisville, Kentucky. And by gum, Tom Drexler, he does everything. He does the heating and air conditioning. He does the plumbing. He does the electrical work. They do everything. If something goes wrong in the house, they can fix it. I call Tom Drexler. And you know how I call Tom Drexler. You know about the, certainly you've heard the jingle up in New Jersey. What's the jingle? Call the plumber whose name is his number. Call the plumber whose name is his number. Call one Tom Drexler. That's his number. Yeah. So I just called one Tom Drexler. And they've been out here a bunch of times. I, I Mike Fox in the electric department and Blake Bishop, they're big fans of the podcast. Randy Angel in, in plumbing. And, and Josh and James, who were just over here looking at this furnace and got me squared away. They're all big fans of the program. They've been out here a bunch. They've done all kinds of things. So I have them, but they couldn't get here till about two in the afternoon. James comes in first with a young man he's training. And they look at, at the, the, it's the oldest furnace in the house. I got four of them. This is the oldest one. And I've been planning on replacing it, but I didn't think I'd go to do it Tuesday morning, right? So he gets it running. And he said, I said, well, now what's going on? And he shows me all the pictures and where it's leaking and what the things that's happened because it's old and it's starting to go. And he said, well, it's working now. He said, but you're going to have to sign a, a, for me to leave it on, you're going to have to sign a release that I've informed you that you could potentially die in your sleep of carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh boy. That's what you want to hear. And I said, well, he said, we can replace it in one day. I said, well, the problem is tomorrow's cameos, Thursday's cameos, Friday's the experience. Sunday, apparently now is going to be the, the drive-through again. And, and I thought it was going to be Monday because that's Valentine's Day. But nevertheless, I said, the next day that I can do this and have this done and have this noise going on in, in the house is Tuesday. Do you think I'll die before Tuesday? He said, ah, he's thinking about it. He said, I think, you know, you'd probably be okay, but I can't tell you that. I said, all right, I've got the carbon monoxide detector plugged in 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 several places in the house. He said, well, if that goes off, you need to dive out the window because that's like right now. See, this will be a lower volume amount that will just seep in and slowly take over. And before you know it, you don't know it. I said, well, I'll take the chance because I've got programs to do. So now Tuesday, well, I, I, so he leaves, but the guy to price me the new unit, that's Josh. He has to come over. So he can't get over because it's a spur, sperm of the moment thing. He can't get over till about 630. Well, now it's dark and now, and I've been dealing with this thing all day. 
And now we're out in the backyard with the flashlight looking at the outdoor unit and blah, blah. I'm saying, while you're here, I want that water heater replaced because, fuck, it's in the same utility room and it's it's old, too. Might as well take care of everything. So by the time he leaves, it's about 8.15, 8.30 that night. And, uh, and, and when I went out in the dark to look at the outside unit with him, I did step in some of Harley's poop. So I, I was a little verklempt over all that, but they're coming Tuesday. They're going to put me a new furnace in, new water heater. It's going to be just nice as can be. All That's right. my week. You just got to get there now. I just got to get there. But there has been, Brian, last I will have you know, the cult of Cornette are the greatest people in the world. And by the way, thank everybody. Thank you for the folks that jumped in on the cameo situation and I hope everybody liked everything again. There was several people that said, here's the description, Brian, please talk to my husband. He's an amazing husband. He's a wonderful father. He works two jobs to support us. He, we've got however many kids and dogs and he also volunteers with charity in his spare time. And he just recently cured cancer, roast the shit out of him. Well, fuck a horrible human being like that. I should have no trouble, right? <laughs> but otherwise than that, everything was fine. But anyway, the cult of Cornette, they're the greatest people in the world. Guess what? Was delivered here to the castle just, just a, about two days ago. A giant box from, uh, I, I didn't see the delivery truck. They left it at the gate column. Oh, no one loves a giant box like you do. Well, because anything comes out of a box is over. And it's definitely over with me. A member of the cult of Cornette sent me four 12-packs of Sprite Zero in the can. Oh, wow. Because they've been, they've been teasing me on, well, I'm not even done yet. They've been teasing me on Twitter. People have been sending pictures from everywhere that I'm not. In Australia, in New, in New Zealand, in goddamn Des Moines. They've all got Sprite Zero. I just ain't been able to get any. So this box shows up a couple of days ago and there's no note in it. And it's from a, it's, it's shipped from Louisiana, but it's just a company that does shipping out of somebody's ordered it for me. There was no identification, but I appreciate it. Then I'll have, you know, <laughs> that I'll look out the window and down at the road next to the mailbox. There's four more 12 packs of Sprite zero in a can sitting by the side of the driveway. And I go down there, and there's a note on top of this. And by the way, hold on here. Where's my note? I thought I had his note. Well, it was Wes. Wes here in Louisville. I've saved the note because he's got his email address on it, and I'm going to get back with him. But Wes here in Louisville, I'm not going to reveal what grocery store that he is affiliated with, but he works at one here in town, and he grew up just two miles down the road, so he knew where the castle was, and he snatched four 12-packs of Sprite Zero in cans off the truck before they went out on the grocery floor and brought them over to me. And, and he left a note saying, please, I'm a non-weirdo, and I won't ever come here again, but I it was too much to ship these things. Well, Wes, come by any time. And then... Yesterday, I looked down and there's another box sitting there because Federal Express does not like to come up my driveway with their big truck. 
So I go down there and somebody else has sent me another four 12 packs in cans of Sprite Zero from the same shipping company in Louisiana. So you guys are the greatest. I give you entertainment, you give me Sprite Zero. It's it's tit for tat, so to speak. It's the way things ought to be. You get something, you give something. We got a little a little social intercourse going on around here. If anyone has a hookup for tropical citrus vitamin water, let me know. <laughs> I mean, see, you would say something. I was going to say I should have said, boy, they've got a shortage at the store of, you know, South American sex slaves or something. <laughs> something fun to get. Instead, you know, anyway. Tropical citrus vitamin water. Tropical citrus vitamin water. I got a story that Bobby Fulton told me the other day. I talked to Bobby Fulton on the phone. He's doing better since his uh, shoulder replacement surgery. But uh, we we caught up for a few minutes and just uh, this doesn't take long. And it's not the greatest story in the world, but it just tickled me. He, I don't even know how this came up in our conversation, but these things happen when I talk to Bobby. But he re reminded me of the time he used to run. It was back in the 90s when he lived in the in North Carolina. He was running a lot of spot shows in the smaller towns in North Carolina. And, you know, when you go to the small towns, you have a main event with some name or other, which usually was him against some other name since everybody knew Bobby. And then you might have a tag team match and have a local singles match. You either put a girls match on or a midget match on because it's you're in the rec center or the school. You want something for the kids. Bobby liked to book midget matches. but this is a little small Monkville, North Carolina or whatever. He's not going to call Littlebrook over in St. Joseph, Missouri and fly two of the real midgets over there, whatever. He's looking for a local outlaw midget match. So he knows one midget. And he calls the midget and he says, hey, can you get me? Can you get an opponent and you guys come and work on my show? Oh, yeah, I'll be there. So the show comes about, the day of the show. And here comes the midget and he walks in and he's alone. And Bobby said, have you got an appointment or an appointment? It got an opponent. And the midget said, well, yeah, he's going to be here, but he's a little taller than me. Well, I don't, I don't care. Whatever. Well, he don't see nobody. Don't see nobody. He goes back to the guy again. He says, Hey, is this guy going to be here? So, well, yeah, but he's a little taller than me. I don't care. Just, you know, he needs to be here. Finally, Bobby looks up in the locker room. And in walks this old man, little old man, about five foot three and 50 something years old and kind of balding, whatever. He's a little old man. He, he says, hey, he thinks it's a fan. He says, hey, what are you doing? And you can't come in the locker room. I'm wrestling tonight. No, you're not. Who are you supposed to be? I'm the midget. Fucking Bobby freaks. He flips out. He's what the fuck? And he goes to the real midget. And he says, this ain't a fucking midget. You what? What are you trying to pull here? Well, he's all he is. I could get him, but he's the only guy I got to work with. All right. So he's stuck between a rock and he went off on these people. He said, I can't believe the type of people that I have to deal with in the wrestling business that you would do something like this and and that you would cheat me and lie to me and and bring me a fake midget. So what he had to do was, he, since he had no other choice, he he let the guy work, and he had him announced as Little Louie, the world's tallest midget wrestler. 
It's a very Bobby Fulton story. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing that tickled me the most was his extreme indignance that somebody, some outlaw midget wrestler would, would misrepresent himself. He said, you, you people are the shame of the wrestling business. <laughs> if there was like a wrestling TV show, like a comedy, this would be one of the episodes. What happens when the wrong midget wrestler? What happens when the guy's not even a midget wrestler? Yeah. You have to make do with these things. At least he wasn't like Sam Phillips' son. Who was it? Jerry that Sputnik Monroe made. The- <laughs> That's right. Because that, he was a 12-year-old kid, but he, was, he wasn't a midget. He was just a 12-year-old kid, and he was perfectly formed because he wasn't like he didn't have the short legs or whatever, so they they called him the world's most perfectly formed midget wrestler or whatever. Anyway, I've got emails, Brian. All right. I'll have you know I've got some emails from the uh, cult of Cornette. Just real quickly, this is from Riley from Glens Falls. Dear Mr. Cornette, I sent an email over a year ago to the drive-thru, but unfortunately, Brian only favors people named Charlie from Cockville. Around Thanksgiving last year, my grandmother passed away at the age of 96, and I had emailed you to tell you an entertaining story that's pretty legendary in my family. Back in the 1970s, Andre the Giant paid a visit to the small town of South Glens Falls, New York, hometown, by the way, of Hacksaw Jim Duggan. My grandfather was a frequent patron at a local bar, and when he walked in, he saw this massive human sitting in his seat. My five-foot-seven grandfather walked up to him, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, Hey, you bugger, I think you're in my seat. Andre then proceeded to laugh, picked my grandpa up like a baby, and placed him on his bar stool. He shared a beer or two uh, with Andrea. I don't know who Andrea just came into this story. And later that night, my grandma—oh, possibly my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother. I think he meant Andre, and he misspelled it. Oh wait, he shared a beer or two with Andre. Okay, that's right. Uh, Andrea is apparently not his grandmother. Anyway, shared a beer or two with Andre, and later that night, my grandmother ended up even dancing with him. Her and I always joked about that story and laughed about it routinely up until her passing. Appreciate you, Mister Cornette. Toppings belong on pizza, Brian. Sounds fake. It's not fake. Here's one, something that we discussed on the program a week or two ago. We talked about uh, an impending colonoscopy that I may be having and and the story of Steve Austin's colonoscopy or Steve Colon's Austinoscopy. Steve-O. Yeah, Steve-O's. This email is from Grumpy Lemming. Hello, Grumpy. Dear Jim, I can tell you from personal experience that in the United Kingdom, you do not go to sleep when you have a colonoscopy. They give you the option of gas or air. What the fuck? I'll take both. Anyway, (laughs) um, I had my colonoscopy in Burnley Hospital. That day, the Burnley Football Club was playing against Blackburn, And those two towns have a rivalry that's lasted a long time. Don't ask me why. I can't stand football. And the doctors asked me, was it okay to carry on listening to the radio during the procedure? I said it was okay. What? What? So apparently the doctors, we want to listen to the football game while we're sticking this thing up your ass. Well, no, it could be actually 
you know, sometimes if you listen to music and you do it regularly while you do something, you got to get into a routine. You get maybe a guy wants to hear some music and kind of get his thing. No, I, it was the football game. Oh, I guess it was the football game. Yes. That's why I mentioned the foot. Are you paying attention? Yes. He's listening to the football game while he's shoving the gimmick up the guy's ass. No wonder grumpy Lemming is grumpy here. Anyway, he continues. What happens sounds ridiculous and made for comedy, but Brian doesn't like toppings on pizza, so anything is possible. What the hell? Again? Again. Right at the point where the camera entered my hole, Burnley actually... <laughs> 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 Burnley actually scored a goal and the crowd cheering seemed so loud. It was pretty surreal to say the least. So as soon as the thing goes up his hole, uh, the football team scores the goal and, and the crowd and the crowd cheers. They go wild. They actually give you the option to watch the procedure on the monitor. I can honestly say that is a movie I never want to watch again. This is, I've had several people say in the United Kingdom, they do not put you to sleep to give you the colonoscopy. You know, I have to admit, I've never had a colonoscopy and I didn't realize they put you to sleep just because of the Katie Couric thing on the Today Show. I thought she was awake while they did it. That was a long time ago. I didn't even know that women were supposed to have colonoscopies. I thought it was, it was a guy's thing. Well, so women women can do whatever can a man could do. Well, it doesn't mean they might want to. If you don't have to, for heaven's sake, I don't, I guess, you know, everybody can have a rotten anus. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what the transition is to JimCornette.com, but it ain't rotten. It's not a rotten website. No, ladies and gentlemen. As you hear this right now, the Cornets Collectibles store at jimcornet.com hopefully is open for business. For t-shirts and autographed pictures and Cult of Cornet membership certificates and DVDs and autographed copies of Behind the Curtain, the incredible graphic novel, all those now available again at jimcornet.com under the auspices of Fanny and Felcher Featherbottom doing the shipping. I'm still signing everything. Everything still passes through my hands, but they're taking some of the burden off of me on the packing and shipping so that we can get these items to the customers as quickly as possible. And I don't know this to be the case. I hope it will go smoothly. It might be chaos, but if you've wanted some of these items this week and next week is the time that you need to jump in and get these things because then we're going to start getting busy next month with some other varieties of things that may bog people down. So if you want something, now's the time. JimCornette.com, click on collectibles and shop with impunity. And think of poor Fanny and Felcher with one arm apiece trying to pack all this stuff up and ship it out. You know, I'm, I think I need to get a team picture. I need to get a picture of Hotchkiss with his multiple extra fingers that have been sewed back on since I cut them off and his male pubic pattern baldness <laughs> next to Fanny and Felcher with one arm each 
shipping stuff at the post office at John the Hunchback's window. That would be a picture. Is Paint Your Life a sponsor this week? No, but by God, we can stick them in. Um, <laughs> you know, here's a, somebody else who's not a sponsor, but another old friend I actually talked to. Have I ever mentioned Lynn McAllister to you? I don't think so, no. Lynn McAllister was the photographer that worked for Bill Apter and uh, shot photos in the Atlanta TBS studios and in the Omni and... He shot some Continental stuff, too, over in Alabama during the late 80s. A lot of the great studio portrait pictures of the Midnight Express and I and so many of the the top guys for Crockett and, and all over the place uh, from those days that you still see those pictures out there, they were taken by Lynn McAllister. And son of a gun, I hadn't seen or heard from him in 20 years because when 90 came around and um, especially when, you know, WC or TBS had really taken over and, you know, he left and got a real life and a real job and a real family instead of messing with the wrestling business. But he emailed me here not long ago. I didn't even know he was still breathing. I'm normally, I figure now at my age, if I haven't seen somebody or heard about them in 15 or 20 years, I figure oh, they're, they're gone. But Lynn's still with us, and uh, there's a project coming up that I'm going to be working on uh, related to the Midnight Express. We're going to be using some of his pictures, and he mentioned to me that he is on eBay. He's got an eBay store. So, folks, if you want, from the photographer, from the original negatives, studio-quality portrait, full-color, 8 by 10 photos of all of the top NWA guys and their championship belts and all the outfits and everything from the late 80s, just like that appeared in Pro Wrestling Illustrated, etc. Go to eBay and search 80s Pro Wrestling Photos, and that'll take you right to Lynn McAllister's store. And he's got some great stuff, and we're going to be working on a little thing with, with some of his pictures, and we'll be talking about that in the months to come. But 80s Pro Wrestling Photos, search that on eBay. And you'll find Lynn's stuff. And my smiling face is there, too. Did you, Brian, before we start talking about any wrestling, I'm trying to st stall that off as much as possible, at least the current shit, but did you see the news report now on another criminal charge that hopefully somebody will make against our former commander in shit, Donnie Dipshit, the Mango Mussolini, he stole documents from the White when he left in a hurry, being run out of town. He stole boxes and boxes of official documents, some top secret shit. They got on Hillary Clinton. Oh, she had top secret emails on her email. This fucking criminal had top secret security documents in cardboard boxes that he took out of the White House and took with him to Mar-a-Lago. And they noticed they're missing, and they've been talking about it and asking him about it, and finally, he was forced to give them up. They've recovered those. They're trying to go through that now to see what he was trying to cover up. That is, by the way, a crime. There is a legal statute against it. All presidential documents have to go to the National Archives, he was trying to cover up whatever criminal conspiracy he was involved in that uh, is delineated in those documents. And 
They said, well, we left in such a hurry. You think? Most criminals usually do. And there's a new book coming out by Maggie Haberman that I suggest I'm going to be on that. I suggest everybody read it that indicates that the maintenance department at the White House would often find toilets that were in Trump's vicinity clogged up with torn up documents that he was flushing down the toilet. It, it, I mean, it, it shouldn't be a surprise. All the gambling parlors, the drug dealers, the illegal betting places, any criminal group covers up their activity like that. They're just Omarosa Manigault. They're on the outs now. She actually came into the room one time and saw him eating a piece of paper that he had just torn up. This fucking guy learned from goddamn Frank Nitty. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. And it, all we need, the only thing that I'm mad about the, at the Democrats about, the only thing I'm mad about Joe Biden about is he's too nice. And the Democrats are putting up with this shit. Somebody just charge and convict this fucking asshole on any one of the multiple things that he's done that are wrong, illegally, immorally, ethically, whatever, so that he doesn't have to, he can't run for any kind of office again so that we can feel that the world is safe. That's all they got to do. And this would be a fine one because the law states that anyone in office that does this, that steals or covers up documents, or tries to hide documents or won't turn documents over, whatever, not only should lose their, not should, but would lose their office, kicked out of that office, but they would be criminally charged. Well, here's a, here's a nice one. Here's another of the many. So just charge the fucking asshole, convict him. I don't even care if he goes to prison at this point. Just send him back to Mar-a-Lago to melt of old age. But just convict him so that we do not have to worry about him running again with all the other shit we got going on in this world. We don't need to worry about that. Anything. Jaywalking. I don't care. He's committed umpteen million crimes. Convict him of one. Quit being a bunch of pussies. <sighs> Eating and flushing the paper, Brian. But I mean, of course he did. I mean, did you for one second think, I'm sure Trump left all the documents exactly where they <laughs> need to be to be taken for time and looked at by historians? No, of course he was eating and flushing papers. <laughs> I expect nothing else. Well, but you know, here's the thing. I have to think that this was foretold when 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 they did the news stories where they talked about all that Donald Trump eats is Big Macs and Diet Cokes and bullshit like that. I would have to think that his toilets would be clogged up and and with a diet like that. And now we come to find out that he's eating the documents that prove that he's a criminal lying psychopath, a grifter and a con man. He's eating those and clogging his toilets up in the White House. Brian, all the man had to do was start the day off with a healthy breakfast, and not only might he have been more palatable for other human beings to interact with, but 
he wouldn't have stopped up all the toilets in the White House. What do you think? That's a very interesting way of looking at it. I think it's a way that a lot of historians in the future will probably try to think what could have happened with this administration. Well, that's true, because Donald Trump has been full of shit since the day that we first laid eyes on him. But if he had had a healthy meal, a good breakfast, and ate better food, he wouldn't have been full of shit. And folks, I'll tell you what, if you want a healthy breakfast and you want to make your bowel movements a pleasure and and just a miracle to behold, all you've got to do is go to Magic Spoon. Folks, Magic Spoon is perfect for meeting your goals, whether it's eating healthier, saving time in your morning routine, cutting down the carbs and the sugar. You're going to live longer, and you're going to poop like a champion. You don't need all this cereal that's full of sugar and junk that the kids eat. You just need stuff that tastes that good, but doesn't have all the unhealthiness. Don't be drinking these protein shakes and all that powder and stuff. It's like drinking sawdust with muddy water. Now you can have a delicious breakfast. Every single serving of Magic Spoon cereal has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving, only 140 calories a serving. Keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and it won't clog up your toilet. Build your own box. You can get cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and maple waffle. You go to magicspoon.com slash gym, build your custom bundle, and start the day off right. And use the promo code gym at checkout to save $5 off your order. Of course, it's backed with the 100% happiness guarantee. Brian, you've narrowed this down for me. As other things can make you unhappy, and they will not give you your money back from the cereal. But if the cereal makes you unhappy, they will give you your money back. That is, is that correct. the case? That, that is 100% the case, yes. Okay, so if you eat the cereal, and then you walk outside, and somebody has taken a shit on your front porch, what? and you're not happy about that, they won't give you your money back for the cereal. No, and maybe you should move. Well, that's true. When you just did. Because you had that shit on your porch every morning. Anyway, <laughs> folks, remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash Jim. Use the code Jim to save $5 off at checkout. All righty, let's talk about a little old wrestling before we get to the new wrestling. Because we did uh, a thing on the drive through this past week. I've been going through my office filing cabinets. And I've got stacks and stacks and mounds and mounds of papers and files and reports and et cetera from every promotion in the world for the past 40 years. And we came across not only my prized copy of the TNA television format where Shitstain had Dr. Stevie drug abyss, and we read that. That seemed to be popular with the audience. But also, we read a few excerpts from a couple of the WWF agent reports from the the 90s and I found a couple more I'm just going to go through a couple of things here I saved these I remember specifically because it was uh these two are a couple of things I was involved in but I mentioned that before I read any of this this is a transcript and what the the agents would do at every WWF house show there'd be two agents at least one for the locker room and one for the box office. And they handled everything from both ends. 
And every night after the show, there was a recording line at the office in Stamford that the agents would call and had as much time as they wanted to dictate their agent reports. They'd get back to the hotel, call from the hotel phone or what. This is before cell phones for the most part. Paul Heyman had one. I don't know if anybody else did. But anyway, so sometimes it sounds like they can't write, but this is an actual transcript of them speaking, right? So that's why it, it sounds a little conversational. But Jack Lanza was the agent at the Cincinnati Gardens in Cincinnati on January 31st, 1998. The show drew 7,709 people paying $133,354. And a um, couple of the matches, uh, they had a country whipping match between the Headbangers and the Godwins. Uh, DOA against Los Bariquas, remember that. Taka Michinoku and Brian Christopher for the light heavyweight title. Tom Brandy versus, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just said that was probably fun. Uh, it, it, it was. As a matter of fact, Jack Lanza says, outstanding once again. Every night, these two do a bang-up job, and tonight they had the people ooing and eyeing the whole match. They gave them a little bit of everything, the fancy high spots, the heat, the cockiness. The people bought into Taka. Taka won the match with a spectacular move. <laughs> what a maneuver. And a hook for the one, two, three. You know, I'm starting to wish Jack Lanza had a newsletter. I really like the way he writes up wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Brandy and Marvelous Mark Merrow. Uh, of course, Sable is a big part in the match. She gets a tremendous ovation when she comes out, and there's tremendous heat on Merrow when he sends her to the back. <laughs> That's when they were trying to make Merrow a heel, and he would deprive the people of seeing the Silicone Princess herself. Anyway, then Ken Shamrock versus Jeff Jarrett. And i that's the time that I was managing Jeff Jarrett when he had come in and they had made him the, what was it? Was it the NWA United States champion? North American. North American. I knew it was something to do with the country. Well, hear it right here. This was an NWA North American championship match. And that Jack ribbed me. And we did ribs like this at the house shows that people couldn't tell were ribs, but it entertained us and it didn't throw the show off. They told me, go on, get, you guys go first, get on the microphone, cut a promo, get the people fucking hot, get a little steam. So I go in there and start doing it. I see Jack Lanz in the aisleway, give me the stretch. I'm like, what the fuck? Something's going on. Shamrock's not ready, whatever. Well, here's his agent report. Cornette got on the stick and we pulled a little rib on Cornette. I was halfway down the aisle and kept telling him to stretch it, stretch it, stretch it. And he kept going and going. <laughs> finally, he did cut it off, but he was getting some good heat. But he finally caught on that I was ribbing him. <laughs> <laughs> he was just going to see how long I would fucking talk and keep, you know, right? So anyway, uh, we introduced Shamrock. He got a nice ovation. They went out and tore the place down. A lot of things involving Cornette, the high spots, the bumping the heads together, sliding the tennis racket in. Shamrock kicked out while the referee was up with Cornette on the apron. Just well, well, well done. Even though it was a 70s, 80s match, it was very well received and I think one of the better matches for Shamrock. There was a situation where Shamrock made a big comeback and they had some good false finishes up until that point, like they were going to screw Shamrock, but he ended up with a suplex on Jeff, went for the leg for the tap out. Cornette came in, whacked Shamrock on the head with the racket for the disqualification. Shamrock got up slowly, walking after Cornette, who was begging, pleading. It was a sight to behold. He does write real good, even though he's talking. 
Finally, Shamrock snatched him, hooked him, and gave him a big suplex. I hope he didn't get hemorrhoids on it, but he got him up pretty high and flopped him down. <laughs> and we decided to go one better and get two pops. He whipped around and got Cornette's ankle, and of course, t- Cornette's tapping out and tapping out and tapping out. Then Jeff went to the other side of the ring and pulled Cornette out. The referee is pulling Shamrock, trying to get him to let loose. <laughs> and Shamrock got up to address the referee. And they, we did the tug of war, and Shamrock deals with the referee and lets go of me, and Jeff pulls me out on my fucking head. Uh, but it was just an excellent match. Cornette is a big, big, big part of heat on Jeff. They work very, very well together. The two of them together are forced to be reckoned with. That's why it only lasted four weeks. Interesting comment early on where he said, even though it was a 70s, 80s match, and then, yes. he, and then he put it over. Again, that's coming from Jack Lanza. What do you take that comment as meaning? Because he knew what was going on. He was trying to explain to him. Everybody's working the same. They're all doing what they're doing now. Jeff came in. With me managing Jeff Jarrett, we didn't have to go over anything. because. He learned all the shit that he knew in the same place from the same people that I learned all the shit that I knew. So we just went out and had the fucking match. I knew how to be the manager and he knew how to be the wrestler. If he takes a bump and rolls out under the bottom rope and comes up standing next to me and just looks up at me and puts his right arm on my shoulder to like say, stay here, that means the baby face within the next three seconds is going to slide out and give us the double head bonk. That's not hard to figure out. You don't have to call it just by the, the way that something is set up and a little look or a glance or, you know, the old thing to the manager gets his hand stomped on the apron of the ring. If the baby face is paying attention, if I'm yelling at my guy who's taking a rest and I'm leaning my hand out under the bottom rope on the, on the apron of the ring, all the baby face has to do is run over and fucking stomp it. That doesn't need to be called. But nobody in this generation didn't know how to work those matches, high spot matches, keeping the people fucking occupied. It's a cold match with no angle behind it, but there's plenty of action, plenty of pops. And it's just old fashioned wrestling. And what Jack was saying, even though you guys in the office don't like the 70s and 80s wrestling, it always gets over when you find guys that can do it. And because it was a different kind of match, Shamrock was not used to that style and didn't know all those things, so you had to kind of lead him through it, but it it ended up making his matches more exciting in the house shows. He couldn't just go out there in a house show and do what he did on TV, fucking belly-to-belly and suplex and boom, world's most dangerous man, that's the end of everybody. You had to put in some time and give him some gaga. The, the double head bonk spot, I always, I always like to be in the guy's right hand because you know how to screw you up if you're, on, if you're in the left hand. If Imagine that you and me, Brian, last, we're in the ring with John Cena and Cena's going to give us a double head bonk. Well, he grabs me in his right hand and he grabs you in his left hand and you can find out instantly whether a guy knows how to work or not by just how he does this. If he grabs both guys, you and me, by the back of our hair and just holds on, then he knows what he's doing. Then we rear back and we fucking go forward. And the reason I like to be in the right hand is because if I'm right-handed and I'm in the guy's right hand, my right arm is free. Whereas the guy in the left hand, 
if he does some contact with his right hand, he's going to get bogged down in the guy that's doing the double head bonk because he's on that side. So all the guy in the left hand has to do is come forward with his head, turn slightly to the right, and stick his shoulder out there, and the guy on the right hand, he's going to come not only with the side of his head, but also with his right hand waving in the air, and the impact is going to happen at the same time where we touch each other by the shoulders, the heads never meet, but the fucking arm flies back along with the heads and the hair, and it causes the impression of a collision, and then we all take bumps. If the guy grabs you and he tries to pull your heads back, well, fuck you, for one thing. For another thing, he doesn't know how to work. And if he tries to shove your heads together, double fuck you, and he really doesn't know how to work. Simple. Anyway. You know, on a national <laughs> stage, everyone got to see Jeff Jarrett as that heel with a Jim Cornette briefly, but with other managers or other heels around him. But... You know, go watch like 93 Memphis and 92 Memphis in 91 Memphis, maybe too. <laughs> he is really good as that baby face stomping on the heel manager's fingers, as good as he was yes. having the heel manager in his corner. <laughs> he was really good as a baby face. You know, and then of course he became a heel as soon as he went to the WWF, but he was actually really good as a baby face. Well, and that Jeff is one of the best workers that I ever managed. And he was one of the best workers in TNA. He's that's why I say his matches. He held everything together because he could work babyface or heel. He could work with anybody, and he knew old-style wrestling. It wasn't just the same shit that the modern guys were doing. But anyway, uh, going to the—this is like a four-page uh, recap of the main event. The main event that night was a six-man tag team match. Steve Austin, Cactus Jack, and Owen Hart against Rocky Maivia and the New Age Outlaws. That's interesting. Well, it, it was actually, it was changed from what was originally advertised, which was Animal, Hawk, and Owen Hart against Shawn Michaels, Road Dog, and Billy Gunn. And I don't know why. That's been lost to time. But just listen to Jack Lanza talk about this was, remember, this is January 1998. And people are just catching on that Steve Austin is the biggest star in the wrestling business, right? As of recently at that point. What was the date? January what? January 31, 1998. That's why Sean's not there. That's right after the match at the Royal Rumble with his back. Ah, well, there you go. He's selling that again. But anyway, <laughs> um, so the thing is, Steve Austin couldn't be the babyface that went around shaking hands and told everybody, thank you for coming at the end of the fucking night and everything. Send the people home happy like the WWF house shows always did. So instead, Steve starts doing something that Steve Austin would do. So here's the description. After Hunter and China is out of there, they've done some business. We left Steve in the ring. He hit the corners again, and the pop just didn't stop, and he left. But then what he did tonight was very, very interesting, and it's a signature move to him. I've told him he's got to do that every show now. It serves the same purpose as when Sean was a babyface going around and hugging and kissing the people, when Brett was here doing his thing, when Hogan was here doing his posing. With Steve Austin, how Stone Cold would do it, he walked to the short entrance, which in Cincinnati, you enter from the side, so it's a, not a long entryway. He walked to the short entrance, he walked to the curtain, stopped, looked at the people, 
just walked back down to the ring and held up his hands and turned around and walked back. My God, it was like he was throwing $1,000 bills at him. He gave them a little something <laughs> back as appreciation for their support, but in Steve Austin style, he didn't shake any hands. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't smile. And the people just kept it up and kept it up. It was almost like we were thinking about sending him out again for a curtain call, but we didn't do that. But it's a very good piece. It was Austin's presence. He was still staying true to himself. He didn't just suddenly start smiling and shaking hands and everything. But at the same time, he could milk that reaction where they just wouldn't stop, right? So anyway, then the next day we were in Louisville. And I wanted to read this because this is fucking... Dave Hebner was the agent for the box office. Uh, if Jack handled the locker room and the finishes and the matches, Dave handled the box office and the publicity. If there was meet and greets, somebody there from the TV station that was important in town, whatever, right? And they worked these agents to death because they didn't just have to do meet and greets at the building. These agents are on the road every night and the office in Stamford is organizing personal appearances, publicity deals on location in these various towns, and they've got to go with the talent to do that also, right? So Dave Hebner does the Louisville February 1st, 1998 box office or uh, uh, agent report. And he talks about they did meet and greets for uh, one of the lawyer. Ed Kaufman is a lawyer in Stamford. His brother was here in Louisville. I remember meeting him. He says, also, I had a meet and greet today for Shamrock in Louisville. I got a sheet saying the cancellations. Then I got a sheet saying the ones that were going on. I never got a sheet telling me that this thing was canceled. I got up early this morning at 8 a.m. and left to go to Louisville from Cincinnati. And Shamrock, I knew he wasn't going to make it. After the Cincinnati show last night, I went back over to his hotel at 1 a.m. this morning because I forgot to tell him at the matches, and I wanted to remind him. I can't do everything for these guys. <laughs> so knowing that he's missed them before, I got up out of bed at one o'clock last night, got dressed, went over to the hotel to find out where he was staying, tried to call to talk to him, but he had checked out of his room and went to some friend's house who had turned out to be Kim Wood from the Bengals, who was Pillman's friend. So I talked to Road Dog, and they didn't have any information on where he was at or the number. So I went back to the hotel. I called the headbangers. Got them up at 8 a.m. this morning, showered, shaved, and we left to go to Louisville and make that personal appearance from noon to 1. We get to the building at 11 a.m., sat there and waited until afternoon. The limo never showed up. I called Jill and paged. She tried to call me back. I called Tracy. She called, or she didn't call me back. I called Tracy. She called me back. These are secretaries. And the personal appearance had been canceled. Jill said she told me it had been canceled two days ago. I was home on Thursday. I was home on Friday before I left. I could have been paged at home. Nobody told me anything. You know, when I'm at home, my beeper stays on 24 hours a day, whether I'm working or not working. See, th there's no cell phones. You had to beep people, and they had to go to a phone somewhere and call you back, right? When they need something, they could always call me to tell me to do this, tell me to do that. And it was just a shame with all that traveling down to Huntington, West Virginia, 200 miles down, 200 miles back, a double shot Saturday. I'm not complaining. I'd like to get a little rest before TV. It's nice, you know. I just thought we'd get a call to say it was canceled, but nothing. 
So we got to the building at 11 a.m. Like I said, the limo didn't show up, so we just stayed at the building from 11 a.m. until the time we left tonight. It just didn't set me off too good. I can tell you that. <laughs> wow. Uh, this kind of shit was uh, all the time, but the show in Louisville sold 5,772 tickets for $105,260. That wow. was pretty much considered a Oh, I'm sorry. Wait. With the comps... It was 6,185 people. That is a complete slap-dab sellout of the Louisville Gardens. That's how hot uh, Austin was. And in the, the main event that night was, again, Stone Cold Cactus and Owen against Rocky and the New Age Outlaws. And that was, you know, same type of thing. And again, Ken Shamrock and Jeff Jarrett. Uh, and it... <laughs> It was my, obviously it's my hometown and Jeff had worked here his entire career pretty much up to that point. So we, um, took advantage of the crowd being somewhat predisposed to be into what we were doing. And we tore the house down again. What did Hebner say? We heard Al Lanza put you over. What did Hebner say? Well, no, well, no Lanza's doing the report again on the matches. That was oh. Hebner's report from the box office and the appearances <laughs> and everything. But what what Jack said, uh, hold on, I'll, I'll the, the, we get the DQ. The funny part is at the end. We get the DQ. We have the same match. He's putting uh, the match over. Uh, Shamrock, I hit him with the racket. He's coming toward me. He's milking. I'm begging shamrock snatches me and suplexes me then goes for the ankle blah 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 and finally he says here's what we were all waiting for tonight since Cornette filled himself at his mom's house for dinner a late dinner plus <laughs> pie and everything as you would imagine he was stuffed so we were all waiting for him to barf in the ring on the, on the uh belly to belly the suplex right but he said if he'd landed on his back, normally he would have exploded, but he landed on his hip. So he'd rather have a plastic hip than to lose any of the food that he <laughs> ate this afternoon. <laughs> so that was rather humorous. But anyway, there you had a couple of other excerpts from some agent reports from back in the old days. You're making Jack Lanza very popular. I want to hear more of the Jack Lanza stuff. I'm telling you, he was a hell of a guy. And that's why Austin took him to be his his primary house show agent uh because pat just went to the tvs and pat was you know for pay-per-view matches and and big raw matches and etc pat was the guy but in the house shows you know steve asked jack kind of to take him under his wing and and he was the one giving him advice and criticism or suggestions or whatever on all these house shows where steve was still figuring out how to be stone cold if one of these reports that Jack Lanza called in had something that would be even mildly concerning, who reads it? Who who sees the transcription and who acts on it? Um, Vince got him. I don't know whether Vince sat there and read every word. Uh, everybody in the office, Bruce, myself, whoever was on creative, Jim Ross. Um, Do you have the report from when Michael started the riot in Little Rock? Got possibly somewhere. I remember reading it. See, I didn't save everything. You have to remember between the Finkel reports and the agent reports and these things. It, it, I'm sure just the documents that I got on Finkel reports, agent reports, and memos would be a six or eight foot stack of fucking paper, single sheets 
over my period of time there. So I didn't save everything. I may have it though, because I got a bunch of stuff. So we're going to be, look, as I start cleaning out or start, as I continue cleaning out my files, we'll find some more shit. But yeah, that was, he basically he started the riot because they were in Little Rock, Arkansas, and people started throwing shit because they were the heels. And it's Mid-South Town and the people were drunk and, <laughs> and they were old-fashioned wrestling fans. And instead of just starting the match where they would probably calm down and stop throwing stuff once the match got started, without even starting the match, Michaels just turned around and left the building and said, fuck it, I ain't working. And when they found out they weren't going to get the main event, that's when they set the seats on fire. Literally. So, yeah, that was a big topic. Of con and Danny Hodge was there. J JR had booked Danny Hodge in Little Rock and, oh, God, whatever other. Tulsa, probably. Tulsa, probably, or something in Oklahoma the night before. Oak City, Tulsa. To be, the, I think, special referee or whatever. And so now there's Danny Hodge, and he's got to watch this little fucking whiny bitch-ass baby Shawn Michaels throw another fucking tantrum and start a riot. But we'd had a few riots in Little Rock, but we got the match in first. The match is what caused the riot, not fuck you. I'm not going to wrestle for you after you paid to see me. Not Axel Rose. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is the story, am I getting it wrong? That Danny Hodge, who, what was he? He was already, was he in the seventies and the sixties there? Well, as 1998, he was in the 52 Olympics. So he was in his sixties, late sixties. Isn't the story that when the riot was going on, he went up to Jim Ross and he was like, do you guys need me to do anything? Like he was ready to go yeah. out there and start <laughs> yeah, fighting yeah. people. <laughs> need any help? I'll, you know, it's like when we went to Texas, one of the, the security guys for world-class wrestling had, had been, or allegedly had been one of the Texas Rangers. Those guys the, with the cowboy hats? The big black cowboy hat, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, when I first, I said, oh, shit, it, 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 the big one's name, I think was Rosie. Um, he was like six, five and had the big cowboy hat on and was a, you know, big stout motherfucker. But I see at the spot show one time, I said, wait, we got one guy to walk us to the ring. And that's when I, I heard the phrase for the first time that they'd used for the Texas Rangers, one riot, one ranger. <laughs> I never heard and, that. Yeah. One riot, <laughs> one ranger. And son of a bitch, that guy, the people backed up for him and spread out because they said like in San Antonio, some of those places, he'd walk in front of you. If a guy had a knife, he'd just snatch the wrist with the knife in one hand, clock the guy in the face with a fucking a right in the other hand and the guy would drop and you'd continue on your way. He'd just do that through the crowd. You know, when people talk about the rise and the popularity and the greatness of early to mid eighties, world-class up until 86, everyone focuses on the Von Erichs and the Freebirds and the music and the production and the vignettes. Not enough is said about the two security guards and the cowboy hat. Yeah. No other promotion had anything like that where, they would just walk the guys down there, and you knew you shouldn't mess with those guys. But they didn't look like big bouncers in tight shirts. They were wearing button-up shirts and cowboy hats. Yeah. And, well, and, and the thing is, in honestly, in that situation, they did better than some of the local police. Well, in the small towns, you didn't know whether the police were on your side or not. They could be siding with the fucking baby faces and the fans, and you're fucked, right? You needed a friendly, friendly security force, but also... 
it was it was easier to get the cowboy hat guys to get you out of there quicker. The cops sometimes didn't want to fucking just cold cock a fan or get sued or whatever. But those guys, they'd get you out of there one way or the other. And then they'd worry about it later. So it was, sometimes it was better. But but yes, that was the story that one the one big one had been a Texas Ranger in the past. And and I guess I'm sure between the people that Fritz knew and the people that, you know, they knew they weren't going to get too many lawsuits. You remember Kerry got busted for drugs at the airport in 83. Yeah. And not only did it go away, but the fans were convinced that Michael Hayes planted the drugs on yeah. innocent Kerry Von Erich. <laughs> I'm t- the pull that Fritz Von Erich had in Dallas, Texas. That was no joke. You get caught with drugs at the DFW airport and goddamn, it just goes away. It's an interesting topic. Which promoter had the most actual pull in their town? Not as a wrestling promoter, but in terms of what you can get away with and what you could do. Well, a lot of people said that Nick Goulas is the one that got the NWA uh, off the hook in the antitrust business in the late fifties, because he was friends with Senator Estes Kefauver from, uh, Kefauver from Tennessee. I mean, you know, we, we've just talked about what Fritz could do in Dallas, Sam Muchnick in St. Louis. He knew everybody, every politician, every journalist, everybody in the media. What about Watts in New Orleans? Was it ever um, like that? Watts Watts was good in Louisiana because his attorney, the athletic commission was also on the athletic commission, Pepe Bruno. Yeah. Emil Pepe Bruno. And they had an archaic uh, ruling in Louisiana for quite some time that there could only be one wrestling promoter authorized to be the booker of wrestling matches in the state. And that lasted for a long time. And there was all, I mean, Louisiana was so crooked politically, as long as you knew the right people, you could get away with anything. But Watts himself as a person probably had more pull in Oklahoma. What about Bosch in Houston? Gosh. Remember when George Bush ran for, I think, Congress initially, he knew I have to go to wrestling and become friends with Paul Bosch. Well, not, they became real friends, but I have to yeah. go to wrestling and get to know Paul Bosch and get that audience. I mean, that's how powerful Bosch was in Houston. Yeah. And, you know, and the Vern Gagne in Minneapolis. Um, he couldn't stop them from taking his house with eminent domain. Well, but that was that was a long time after the heyday. That was in the 90s. That's true. When, when he was not only a star athlete from the University of Minneapolis, then he went to the fucking Olympics, and then he was on national television and comes back as a conquering hero in the 1960s. He was one of the biggest, 50s and 60s, he was one of the biggest sports heroes in the state of Minnesota. Legitimate sports, because he was an NCAA champion. So they all, by virtue of who they were, they all had television in their markets, they were all there for years and years and entrenched. And I mean, even in Knoxville, I talked to bankers and high powered attorneys that his kids had snuck under the fence at Chillhowie Park to go see Ron Wright. So now, you know, guy's president of a bank, but he has fond memories of when he used to break the law to get to see this guy. So, and which promoter had the least influence? 
politically. Mike LaBelle, right? <laughs> which promoter had no influence whatsoever. <laughs> well, you know, actually LaBelle, because of the boxing and the wrestling and the Olympic auditorium, I mean, it's still, it's Los Angeles. And in the overall scheme of things, people didn't give a shit, but they, just he, he lost his TV of- and put his hands up and said, okay, we'll go to Spanish language. Who cares? Yeah, but, you know, the size of the town out there, the wrestling promotion was not going to be the talk of the town like it was in Memphis or Atlanta or whatever at one time. But, you know, they still had maybe, I don't know, I don't I don't know how much pull uh, old Bob Geigel had over in Kansas City. I hate to shit on Kansas City all the time. Well, let me ask you this and then we can move on. So Nick Goulas, primarily Tennessee and Alabama. Let's just focus on that. Right. We've seen pictures of various wrestlers with George Wallace. And you just mentioned another politician that Nick Goulas was friends with. If you were a politician in Alabama or Tennessee, and you were covering a district that had Nick Goulas wrestling, more than likely, did you know him and did you have a relationship with him in one way or another? Um... When you were running for office, did you call up and say, hey... Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. see, that's, that's the thing, is that... Nick was from Birmingham, and that's why Birmingham was one of his, when they were able to bring Birmingham into the Nashville and Chattanooga office, booking office, that's why Nick always went to Birmingham, and Birmingham was kind of his town, and that was a Monday night town. And it was Monday night, I was about to say, yeah. So when they brought Memphis in, because Roy Welch, that was his town, that was right down the road from Dyersburg, the seat of the Welch family dynasty. He took care of Memphis on Monday. So depending on what market it was, yeah, George Wallace was the Alabama governor in the 60s, and you've seen a bunch of wrestlers' pictures because they were invited to the governor's mansion. Um, Because in Birmingham on Monday nights, you know, if there's 5,000 people every Monday in Birmingham, those are a lot of fucking voters. And the wrestlers were all over television, and the ratings were huge. In Memphis, um, nobody, Nick never went. Nobody saw him. In Memphis, you know, they knew the power of the television, and local politicians would obviously, at some point or another, you know, show up. But politicians getting involved with the wrestling companies happened more often in the 50s and 60s than it would later on. Of course, Miss Lillian, Jimmy Carter's mother, loved wrestling and wrestling too was her favorite so those pictures got in all the newspapers and everything but on a local basis yes if you were trying to get elected on a local or regional basis in those days it helped to have the wrestling fans because there were so many of them and the tv was so strong and none of those cities down south at at that point had professional sports teams basketball baseball football whatever so it was wrestling and car racing are we going to do more of these agent reports in the future? I think we're going to have to, because Jack Lanza is starting to grow on everyone, as he did on me. And of course, he had the the most famous line. I forgot to mention it when we talked about it after he passed away here not long ago. But he's the man that told me, you can't fuck up a cheeseburger. Because his wife would get mad at him. We'd talk about food and the the shitty catering that Vince would insist on having at all the shows, which was back then was bland, tasteless chicken, grilled chicken and pasta with no sauce on it and salad. And Jack would say, 
Every time he and his wife went to dinner at a restaurant or whatever, he'd order a cheeseburger, even if it was a big steakhouse. And his wife would get mad and say, why are you ordering a cheeseburger? Because you can't fuck up a cheeseburger. And often we'd be sitting in the corner having a non-fuckable cheeseburger. So I like Jack Lanza, but I, you know, another thing about Jack, a lot of people knew this. Jack was like Wahoo McDaniel. Jack was like Jerry Lawler has, has become. Jack had some of the spray on hair. We've talked about this. You remember I've mentioned this, that they carried cans of the spray on hair because Jack had a big, you know, he had that jet black, black Jack's hair that, that he kept died that it was so black it was blue black lightning bugs followed him around in the daytime right and he had the big bald spot on top and he would have some of the spray on hair that would you know cover up that spot and i just have to think what what would it have been like if back in jack lanza's day before he started losing his hair and having to spray paint his head if they had only back then had keeps it would have changed his whole life brian it would have changed his entire life dare i say his agent reports would have been even happier they would they would have been happier and hairier because folks <laughs> like jack lanza two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time that they're 35 sometimes it's pulled out by the roots rather than falling more than 50 million men in the United States suffer from male pattern baldness. And as I mentioned before, Hotchkiss Featherbottom suffers from the male pattern pubic baldness, which is an offshoot. There's only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss, and Keeps offers both of them. That's why it's a simple, stress-free way to keep your hair. You don't have to paint it on. You don't have to buy wigs or toupees. You don't have to go out and try to find witch doctors to cast voodoo spells on your head no all you do is you go to keeps.com k-e-e-p-s.com and where you can find convenient virtual doctor consultations over the internet medications delivered straight to your door you don't have to leave the house the treatment started just ten dollars a month because of the generic versions of these fine hair loss pharmaceuticals and Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors. And every time that someone in the Tokyo Dome uses Keeps, it gets seven stars. So, folks, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss now, go to Keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash J-C-E to get your first month of treatment for free. Keeps dot com slash J-C-E to get your first month's treatment for free. Don't be like Jack Lanza and spray paint your hair on be like Jack Lanza and eat a lot of cheeseburgers with a lovely and healthy head full of hair or a burger without cheese. If you don't like cheeseburgers because you can't fuck up a hamburger unless you add cheese, you can fuck up a hamburger by not putting cheese on it. But once it's got the cheese on it, then it's unfuckable unfuck upable or uh, well uh, do you often fuck cheeseburgers i don't fuck any burgers but i'm then just how correcting your grammar fuckable okay your cheeseburger's unfuckable all right just like your wife <laughs> <laughs> all right now that i got that i led you down that primrose path 
<laughs> good job. Good job. We've got a big interview. We got a big interview coming up now. Let's get to that. Um, I've been saying since I got the advanced copy of this manuscript that this is an amazing book on an amazing, unique and individual in professional wrestling. I often read books on wrestling, but I don't often, if at all, ever learn as much about one individual as I did from reading this book because. We've talked about it. The Sheik purposely led people on red herrings and hid his background and hid his personal life and created the mystique around himself. And in an amazing set of circumstances, he had a 50-year career in professional wrestling, uh, one of the top 10 box office attractions, the probably the all-time biggest box office attraction heel that ever stepped foot in a wrestling ring, there was tremendous positives to the Sheik, tremendous negatives. Uh, Finally, someone has taken on the task of writing the definitive biography of this guy who even his own friends didn't know a lot about. And that man is Brian Solomon. And of course, the man is the Sheik that he wrote about. And the book is called, wait... I'm reaching my notes again. The book is called Blood and Fire. I'm reaching. I know Blood and Fire, but I'm trying to get the subtitle. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik is the title of the book, and it is on sale on April 12th, but they're taking pre-orders now on Amazon. Blood and Fire by Brian Solomon. Pre-orders now on Amazon, and we recorded this interview a little bit earlier today, and we're going to go to that now, Brian, if you can, and we will talk to the author of Blood and Fire, The Story of the Sheik. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being here because I've looked forward to this ever since I got the manuscript last year, whenever, uh, because this book has, has needed to be done. The most mysterious guy for a shoot in wrestling has finally the the curtain has been pulled back somewhat so thank you for being here to plug this thing boy thanks for bringing me on i'm 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 really excited this book has taken over my life for the last couple of years so (laughs) you know i'm ready for it to come out this is great oh you know the thing is i marveled at the research and you know i research is fun and at the same time maddening because you end up uncovering so much stuff and you've got a a newspaper article from here and a magazine article from there and it's all 60 years old and you're trying to put all this stuff together um tim hornbaker does great research rock rims for his california books has done impeccable research but you tackled a subject that is this the sheik ed farhat probably little littler is known about his personal life and his early days especially than anybody else in the business because he tried to keep it so cloudy so how did you tackle that research job and and where did you start well i I think the issue of how secretive his life was is probably why nobody had tried to do a book before or you know it was just it's too difficult. And and I think before the internet, let's say, I don't even know how I would have done it. I mean, it would have taken me a lot longer to do, especially because right when I started working on it, which was the fall of 2019, 
um, COVID hit like a few months <laughs> after that. So the idea of me, you know, I had all these lofty plans. I'm going to travel to Detroit and I'm going to go to the, the hall of records and blah, 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 blah. And I was stuck in my house for months, you know, so, so I had to kind of work around that, but you know, it's one of those things where you would really be surprised at what can be found if you dig around. And I think maybe p people just didn't know where to look. But I mean, I was able to request his military records, okay, from the from the national whatever it is, Office of Records. I got, you know, his his birth records, his death records, just Ancestry.com is incredible what you can find on there. And because you're talking about the early family stuff, I was able to find, you know, ships manifests showing oh. when his parents came over from Syria and things like that. And, you know, there would be times where I'm looking at stuff and sitting there and thinking to myself, I think I may be the only living human being on this planet right now who is aware of this fact that I'm looking at. And I have to put it in this book. Yeah. And well, and I guess this would have been possible before the Internet. But as an old friend of ours used to say, highly unlikely. <laughs> just uh, much because, harder. Yeah. Just because you would have had to literally gone to all these different cities and these places where the, the stuff is kept and it, it nothing. I remember even 10 years ago before the newspapers.com thing got popular uh you know john cosper and i were going to the louisville library to do research on louisville wrestling just looking at the old newspaper ads um but you you profile his family his his uh his early life and the way he got into the wrestling business and which for the first little while he was unremarkable and there was nothing going on and then you know, uh, suddenly the uh, when did the 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 chic come in? I'm trying to remember back to when I read the manuscript. Uh, well, that, I saw one of the real advanced copies. That's right. That was printed out specifically for you at Staples. I went to great lengths <laughs> to get that to you. Two reams of paper they had to go through. So you know that was. Uh, but I'm glad I did it. Oh, but um, but to your question, I mean, it, it's kind of one of these things where um. So that was something else that I that I uncovered that I think was not really part of the conventional knowledge about his career, because the conventional wisdom always was that he and everyone I asked told me the same thing, that he just emerged fully formed um, as the Sheik of Araby, that he never had a match where he wasn't using that uh, gimmick or persona. And that turned out to not be true. I discovered that. OK, so he starts calling himself the Sheik of Araby in 1949. And that's when people start, you know, would always say, well, that's when he started. But he was wrestling for two years before that under his real name, Ed Farhat, uh, straight out of the army with the angle being, you know, this squeaky clean uh, local Lansing boy, um, you know, served in the war. And now he's back and he's a YMCA wrestler and just, you know, you know, total white meat baby face, what you would never imagine. And, and I and I found on newspapers.com. Glad you mentioned that. I mean, that is a godsend. I found the article listing advertising his first match, and it has a picture of him just a as a wrestler, but just as himself. And apparently wow. he did that, yeah, for a couple of years. And then I think it was partly Harry Light and partly Burt Ruby that got together with him, and they and they sort of came up with the Sheik of Araby thing, which came from a popular the title of a popular song. 
Well, now, and a lot of people now are sitting there thinking, well, how was this guy so mysterious when he had already been wrestling as himself? One of the key things, key facts to make that transition a little easier was not only that he hadn't been used in really a main event capacity and he hadn't been pushed, but also there was no television. He had right. he hadn't been beamed out his his style, his look, his visage hadn't been beamed out on television to everybody. It was only in the small clubs that he worked in live that you would have been able to see him as himself. And then suddenly television comes around and now with a little bit different look and the whole gimmick, he's the Sheik of Araby and he's on TV to vast amounts more people than he had ever appeared in, in front of before. Yeah, it was much easier to keep those things secret back then, obviously. And even even visually, I, I, I would even say if you had even been there in one of those small shows and seen him, you might not have even known that it was the same guy because he was completely clean shaven. You know, all he had was just plain pair of trunks, plain pair of boots. I don't think you'd even be able to make the connection, honestly. But But I don't think he had his first thinking about it now. I don't believe that he would have even been on television until... He wound up going with Fred Kohler and Jim Barnett on Chicago TV, the Marigold stuff, which was already a few years into his career. So so nobody the average wrestling fan would have had no idea who he was before, say, 1952 or 53 about. Well, yeah. And actually, uh, I said television came in, but even Detroit didn't get television wrestling uh, until the early fifties. Also, it was the network stuff. If they, you know, whatever television stations were on the air then, but they didn't have a local program at that point in time. And, and here's another fun fact. Some of my childhood interests clashing together because, uh, in the old days, the promoter in Detroit was Adam Weissmuller, who was Johnny Weissmuller's brother, who was not only an Olympic swimmer, but Tarzan in the movies that I you know, loved Tarzan movies before I even saw wrestling. That's right. Yeah. Adam Weissmuller was before, uh, because at the time that the Sheik um, started, the, the main guy in Detroit was Harry Light. He was the NWA representative for Detroit, the whole thing. He was kind of the king of Detroit. And you also had um, Burt Ruby as kind of like his his second in command. But yeah, Adam um, Adam Weissmuller was uh, the the promoter in Detroit immediately before uh, that era, there was all, if you go back even further, there was Nick Landis, who was no relation to Jim, but he was the guy who ran the, originally ran the Olympia auditorium. And, but, and, but, and that would have been, I, I, I didn't put it in the book cause I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but I believe that the Sheik and his family or Eddie and his family were wrestling fans. And I think he may have been going to shows as a kid, even in the thirties, and he may have seen some of those Londis cards, um, but I, I didn't put it in there because I wasn't 100% sure. That's and Well, you mentioned Burt Ruby, and he and the Sheik had a long relationship. Burt Ruby was still used as, um, was he not as a figurehead promoter even when Sheik took over the territory in some places? He was, and this turned out to be kind of a point of contention, I have to say, or maybe kind of just lingering bad blood. So uh, some people may know this, but Burt Ruby has a son who lives out in California. He's uh, he's no kid himself these days, but he is a, a high-powered sports lawyer, and he has some very – and I think Hollywood too. He has some high-profile clients. I think Deion Sanders was a client of his, and so I found him, and I reached out to him. 
And I wanted to interview him for the book and the impression that I got. And in fact, he kind of said this directly to me. He said, I'd be happy to talk to you about my dad. I'd be happy to talk to you about Detroit in those days. I will not talk to you about the Sheik. Wow. Yeah. And so the feeling from when I started digging around, I got the sense that so Ruby helped break Farhat into the business. He kind of discovered him. He brought him to Harry Light. He helped to groom him. And then I think what wound up happening is when when Farhat took over Detroit and he bought it out from Barnett and Doyle, Bert Ruby was still running the, the smaller towns. And I think he gradually may have just sort of pushed him out. Uh-huh. And it might have been a feeling of, you know, well, I, I brought you into this business and you and you did this to me. And, and there was maybe some bad blood there. Well, and uh, so if. Unfortunately, if the Sheik was alive today, he wouldn't have any success in Hollywood because Burt Ruby's son would get even. <laughs> Maybe, um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, the Sheik, again, was so um, unique in wrestling because he had several different eras of stardom, and each one successively kind of got bigger. He was on network television in the 50s, the Sheik of Araby, and as you mentioned in the book, he got wilder at that point, but still it wasn't the the late 60s, 70s chic with the pencil and the fire and the drooling and the crazy and mayhem. But then when network television went away and they concentrated basically in the Midwest, chic and Bruiser, Wilbur Snyder, Bob Ellis, and a few of the other guys that Barnett really had great success with they were the major wrestling stars of the midwest which kind of set chic up to to take over the detroit promotion in in 64 but um he and bruiser it it kind of rivaled each other in a lot of those midwest towns bruiser might be the top star in one chic might be the top star in the other and it's kind of ironic that they ended up settling in their home states that were bordering each other and then later on having a promotional war. Yeah, and, and there was even um, everybody, well, people who, who know the stuff, there was a big wrestling war that happened in the early 70s, of course, where Bruiser tried to move into Detroit. But before that, even uh, immediately after Sheik took over, um, there was a very brief war where Bruiser came in, and this would have been about 64, and tried to do it then, but it was extremely short-lived. Yeah. And uh, he sort of felt like, you know, Bruiser was kind of the bully. You know, the Sheik had bought things out. I don't want to say legally, because I don't think any of this would have stood up in a court of law, <laughs> but he but he felt he did it the fair way. You know, he paid money for it. Money changed hands. Right, money he changed hands. And Bruiser just said, screw that, I'm just going to take it. Because the territory used to be both combined when, right. when Barnett and Doyle were running it, and it kind of broke in half. And so Bruiser always had that attitude of, well, I'm going to I'm gonna take it all. You know, I, I took this part, and I'm going to take it all. And I think, too, you have to remember, and maybe, I think sometimes people don't realize that the Bruiser was, Dick the Bruiser was originally, uh, we have to say it, a, a much bigger star than Sheik of Araby was. I yeah. mean, you know, in the pre- before Sheik took over, um, he was a mid-carder, essentially, and maybe in some areas he was 
he was main eventing like down in Amarillo and stuff. But he was, but in that area, fans would have known him as a mid carder and bruiser had already been a major star for years. But of course the Sheik, you know, when you own your own territory, then he, you know, he elevated himself to be a star of, of equal stature. Yeah, that that's true. Bruiser uh, by far was the, you know, he was one of the biggest drawing cards in the business in the mid and late fifties off the network TV and, and just his, persona and and she had not been used to that level so i'm i'm sure bruiser did say oh this fucking guy but at the same point you know they had the 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 hometown advantage Sheik being from michigan he knew people he could go in and he could homestead that thing just like bruiser did indiana because of his mother's political connections and the fact that he had been since he was a star high school football player there and it sort of set up that Hatfields and McCoys thing with Indiana and Michigan bordering each other. But that that's a tribute to Jim Barnett, the territory that he ran for those years with Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Kentucky, into West Virginia. Um, and it was doing big business in all of those towns. Uh, Cincinnati was a, a bigger town in the 50s than it ever even became in the, you know, in the days of the territory, 70s and 80s. But finally, with Sheik in charge in Detroit, starting in 1964, and Bruiser and Snyder in Indiana, same year, as you mentioned, Sheik starts building himself up in Detroit, and it took a couple of years. But by when did Detroit really start doing the mega business? Was it around 67, 68? I know it got hotter in the 70s, the early 70s with the promotional war, but he was already doing good. You look back at those old body press programs and there's every name in the NWA from the Midwest that's on these cards and and they're, you know, every two weeks, it's just mega events. I was going to say about 67 would be, would be at that, that whole late 60s, early 70s is really the heyday where the the business is just on fire and it's kind of weird to think about it because during that time frame you could make a case that it might have been the hottest promotion in the in the country or or in you know but then it just kind of burned out but by the late 60s yeah it had become huge to the point where even you know the sheik worked for um the mcmahons he worked for capital wrestling in the late 50s and he was, you know, a tag team wrestler. He was with Bull Curry. He was a, he was a mid carter. But then by the late '60s, on the strength of you know the the magazines and how uh, he was main eventing and going, you know, touring the country, they brought him in for that feud with with Bruno in '69 or '68, going into '69. And it couldn't have been more different. Ten years ago, he was a he was a tag team oddity and now he's you know selling out the garden and and philadelphia and baltimore and all over the place with bruno san martino and at the same time the business that he was doing in detroit attracted the attention of the tunnies in toronto because obviously it's a different country but detroit for the people around the world who don't know the geography detroit and toronto are 250 miles apart it's four hour drive and some of the TV in Michigan and Ontario overlaps as well because uh, the TV signals don't know international borders. So with the Sheik doing that kind of business down the road, that's he got the uh, not only got a spot in Toronto, but then finally got the booking deal where Tunney was using 
the Detroit talent. And that gave Sheik not only a hot city like Detroit, but one of the great North American wrestling cities that was under his control. And the Maple Leaf Gardens had seated almost 20,000 people. And that's where he had that famous or or maybe infamous 127 match um, undefeated streak where he didn't lose a, in a single uh, one-on-one match for 127 straight times. And I think that Tunney maybe regretted uh, it, it became almost like a Faustian bargain, you know, where, yeah. where he brought in the Sheik to be this headliner and booker and then he couldn't get rid of him and he just wouldn't stop booking himself on top and beating everybody. I mean, he's beating Luthez in multiple appearances. He's beating San Martino up there and 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 Gene Kaniski and the Funks and just whoever he wants. And uh, the people just got sick of it after a while. Well, and then also, uh, I don't even want to jump ahead, but it, it that since you brought it up, the straw that broke the camel's back was often pointed to as the match with Andre. Right. Where, well, I, and I've seen the video. Um, it lasted four minutes and fireball to the face. Andre rolls out selling and the Sheik gets disqualified. And still the Sheik doesn't get beat. Right. That that really seems to be the turning point. And, and it, you know, you can, like you said, you can see that match. It's it's floating around. It's on YouTube. It's been on video, you know, put out there. And, yeah, I think that was the point where the people just had enough. Because I, I looked it up and um, this was, I think it was 73 or 4. So Andre was still kind of on the ascendancy, right? He wasn't, he was a huge star, but he was going to get even bigger. And he had not lost a match. I'll rephrase that. There wasn't a match that he hadn't won in a year, no matter where he went anywhere. And that was the one where he, you know, even I think the fans were just sort of like, do you mean to tell me that this guy can't even he can't even lay down for Andre the Giant? I mean, give me a break. You know, he threw fire in his face and Andre gets counted out and he wins the match that That's way. That's right. It was a count out, not a disqualification. Right. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was not, I don't believe he was counted out of the ring. I think it was just because of the fire. Yeah. He was incapacitated. It's just, it's a very weak uh, way to get out of it. But, but, but here's the thing now, let, now we're not trying to tear the sheik down. And by the name, mm-hmm. by the way, the name of the book again, blood and fire by Brian Solomon. But would you say that this is also a fair estimate before the hot shotting and the won't get off the top and the won't put anybody else over or make a new star inevitably did what all those things do in wrestling between 1967 and 1974. And I'll, I'll preface this by saying they just released the WWE figures. They sold 600 and some thousand tickets last year. Of course that was a pandemic and that's all over the world, including stadium shows, whatever, but of recent years, the WWE in the entire world has been selling what a little over a million tickets per year in Michigan, just the state of Michigan and the province of Ontario in that seven year run between 1967 and 1974. Do you think it's fair to say the Sheik sold 5 million tickets or more in just those two places? That would be very fair because you know, and you guys have talked about it so many times, the whole structure of the business was so different because you're talking about 
the Sheik running Kobo Arena, which is a 12,000, I think even 12,500 12, seat building every other week and sometimes every week and and um, selling it out or coming close to selling it out all the time. And so, I mean, that adds up and you, you could never do that today, but they were in, but that was their market, you know, in the same way that, the, you know, the WWF was running Madison Square Garden every month and selling it out. I mean, that that's the the way they did it. So not only would I say that 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 number is is very realistic, but he was out drawing anybody you could name, you know, music acts, rock bands, whoever, you know, he, the, God knows he was he was out drawing the Detroit Pistons. They were terrible around <laughs> that time. That was one of their worst periods. So he was it was like, uh, you know, Dave Brzezinski <laughs> calls Kobo the house that the Sheik built. And I think that's fair. Yeah, and I mean, just in uh, per year in Detroit and Toronto, you're looking at close at over four hundred thousand tickets a year. Just those two cities alone, and that's with him flying around and also main eventing in Los Angeles. He was on the the L.A. Uh, the Olympic uh, Stadium, or not the Olympic, the L.A. Coliseum card uh, with Blassie and Tolos that drew twenty seven thousand people. He was on the card of the U.S. title, Sheik versus Bobo Brazil. He was a guest star everywhere that any of the promoters that were in, you know, good graces with him or he was in good graces with them or whatever. There was a few. Sam Muchnick was not a fan, no. but he was everywhere. And that's I say this because we talk about his hot shotting and uh, the too much hardcore, too much blood, the constant, just the constant barrage of it. It works. That's what hot shotting is. And that also people forget today because they do. Everybody's allowed to do everything they want. The Sheik was unique. He was the only one doing this level of violence and carnage and mayhem. Everything that you weren't supposed to be able to do because it would burn a town out or, you know, hurt the business. He was the one guy that was doing it. That's why it got over. And that's why most promoters would bring him in as an attraction as like, is something wicked this way comes this week? You're not going to see it again for a year, but this week he's going to set the fucking building on fire. And, yeah. that, and that's what worked in all those other territories. But his, his got hotter, quicker, and stayed hot and then completely burnt out. Well, yeah, that's because he was always there. Because like he was you, always there. Like you said, you know, if he's coming in to L.A. or New York or or Texas or wherever he's going and people know that this is a special thing, it was special. But when you're constantly doing the same thing and to the Detroit fans, you know, they knew that that's what they were going to see every time. I even wrote in the book that he was it was almost like he was the anti Bruno. <laughs> 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 He he even seemed to model his booking uh, uh, on what Vince Sr. was doing, except replacing a beloved babyface with an absolutely reviled heel, which which didn't yeah. really have the same legs, you know. But but he had the ability, which uh, honestly, a lot of the promoters who had their own territory that were also wrestlers, once they got a territory, they kind of stopped touring and he was an exception to that where you know when Vern Gagne is running the AWA he's pretty much sticking to the AWA or where Fritz von Erich in Dallas and things like that but the Sheik was still and in fact doing it more than ever touring the country and the world even while he was running his own territory 
Well, he had a healthy ego. Yeah. Uh, and and he liked being in the main events. He liked going to Los Angeles. LaBelle would bring him in so he could go shopping on Rodeo Drive and get the custom made suits. And he liked the you know the travel and the the attention and etc. But uh, you you mentioned because we ought to put you on to on to Trump because you got Sheik's tax returns for at least <laughs> one year. Um, he reported now, and we've talked about on the program here about how a lot of the business in those days was done in cash, but he reported personal income of in what one year in the early seventies of over $400,000, which would be somewhere around what couple million in today's money. Yeah. And I mean, he's living in a house that has 40 rooms. It's a giant estate. And just to give you an idea, that house today is run as a hotel. It still exists <laughs> <laughs> and it has like a catering hall space. Uh, and that was just his house and it was made, it was built for him. Uh, it was designed for him. You know, he was, he was really making just money that is incalculable. Like you said, when you're declaring 400,000, especially in wrestling, you had to imagine he was actually bringing in a whole lot more than that. I mean, he'd be coming back from, Japan, and I don't even know how he got away with this. The story was that he's coming back with his boots just filled with money and his <laughs> suitcase just filled with money because they're paying him thousands of dollars, you know, for a match. And when you think about it, he's going out there for like four minutes. I mean, that's not a bad way to make a living. Well, and I'm just wondering if you go to Williamston, Michigan, can you uh, stay in the Bobo Brazil honeymoon suite <laughs> there at that? Um, but no, I've I've heard from the guys in those in the sixties and seventies days when money for the Americans in Japan got really good, but there was nobody had figured that out uh, related to the government yet. The guys would come back with cash strapped to them, in bags, in in, in their underwear, in linings of jackets. It was insane. Yeah, and. Um, I, 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 the story I also heard was that one of the one of the guy's wives got pissed at him when they were getting divorced and stooged him off to the government. That kind of ruined it for everybody. But um, you mentioned Japan about the time that Detroit started dying because the promotional war between Sheik and Bruiser was over. They had when Bruiser was running Detroit opposite the Sheik the same night. Sheik would sell out 12,000 in the Kobo. Bruiser sometimes would put six or 8,000 on a few occasions. In the Olympia, there'd be 20,000 people going to wrestling in Detroit on the same night. And this was when there were multiple shows a month. But then Bruiser finally pulls out back to Indiana. They settle it and they do the, the grudge matches, which drew. But after that, what are they going to follow it with? We've talked about Indiana, how that Bruiser couldn't keep enough towns in one state running to keep the big name talent in the territory that he'd had. Sheik had more markets, Ohio and Michigan, but his talent started aging because like Bruiser, he never changed it and he didn't change himself. So a couple of years later, both of the territories that were two of the hottest in the country are on their ass. But all of a sudden Sheik goes to Japan and he's a fucking big star again after he's been in the wrestling business for 30 years. Yeah, because uh, ironically, the turning point for his domestic business was when the feud, when the war ended with Bruiser, because that the things just start to plummet after 74. 
It was like, um, you know, it, it generated interest in his business and people were coming out to see it. And then once he won, his business kind of started to go down. And part of it, too, is because once they decided to start working together, you've got Dick the Bruiser, you've got the Sheik. Neither guy ever wants to lose to anybody. So so now they have to <laughs> feud with each other. And I listed in the book, I listed all their big matches that they had coming out of the promotional war. Yes. And there is not a single definitive win for either man. They go through a feud that goes through every town in both territories. And nobody I saw wins. a couple of them. Yeah, nobody won. Nobody won any yeah. of them. Even cage matches. So, you know, then, yeah, he goes to Japan and. Well, now, he, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. One time, I think, uh, um, didn't uh, Bruiser won a cage match by pinfall over Creechman at one point. I think. Right. Right. So there would always be, they would find a way. So they would do a and tag, they did team tag match. matches. Poor right. Bobby Heenan. As a matter of fact, I have in my office here the chair, one of the chairs from the Market Square Arena. When they settled the war and Bruiser brought Sheik into Indianapolis and ran the big building, he put Bobby in his corner because Bobby had the most heat of anybody, you know, in his territory. And that's when not only did they not have a real finish, but also uh, Bruiser gave Bobby a payoff on a near sellout in Market Square Arena of almost, uh, I think, like 600 bucks or whatever. And that's when Bobby called Vern and said, fuck it, I'm done. So it. It, it the the settling of the war was the worst thing that happened to both guys' companies. But it, I'm sorry, like you said, so Sheik then goes to Japan. Yeah, he went and and really it was it was Baba. I know he did one tour, which was kind of interesting. Not even a tour. He did kind of a weekend for Anoki, and something went really wrong because what you see in the book is that. A lot of guys were constantly trying to run against him. You know, they weren't there was not a lot of loyalty, you know, and and um, a lot of his own people would jump ship and try to run an outlaw promotion. And there was one time when he went to Japan, it's like they were waiting for him to leave. They, they were actually yeah. waiting for him to leave the country. And the minute he did, it was like Mark Lewin, Killer Tim Brooks, I think even his booker, everybody, Jack Kane, who was his booker. They started a company and he had to rush back and apparently he really burned Inoki because he had to kind of blow off some of the matches they had scheduled and that's why he never worked for him again. And he had to run back to the U.S. to sort of put out the fire. But they even used that when when um, the Sheik was tied in with the Ali Inoki stuff. He was being put out there as one of Muhammad Ali's quote unquote trainers. <laughs> and they I don't know what he was gonna teach Muhammad Ali, but <laughs> how to but throw they, fire. <laughs> Ali with the fire. Down goes Frazier. <laughs> Maybe that would have made it watchable. I don't know. But but they made it out where they were trying to say that the Sheik still had bad blood with Inoki over that tour. And that's why he was helping Muhammad Ali to fight Antonio Inoki. But most of his Japanese tours were, it was Baba. And yeah, he became one of the biggest uh, American stars over there, which was weird because he wasn't even supposed to be American, but he technically was an American wrestling in Japan. Well, and Baba was so straight as a promoter and, you know, Japanese wrestling was so highly athletic and, what 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 the modern fans imagine that Japanese wrestling is now is what it actually was then. It was treated as a real sport. Everyone was an athlete in shape. They trained their young boys' ass off. And then along comes the Sheik, who is completely different. And, of course, he's 50 years old now, but he's got 
Abdullah the Butcher for a tag team partner, and they've got the Funks to work with, and the Funks are over in Japan, and they're legends in Japan, and the Sheik and Dory Sr. went back a long way, because Sheik, uh, the smallest territory that the Sheik ever worked on a regular basis was Amarillo, because they they had a relationship. So now you've got the land of sports-based wrestling with the Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher in it, and the Funks know how to work with them, and it was completely different, and the people went crazy for it. Yeah, and and he stood out, like we were saying before. I mean, it, it was like, and, and you can watch a lot of it, because thank, thankfully they preserved a lot of their video footage a lot better yeah. than, than most American companies did. And you can see some of this and he comes out and it's almost like he's from another planet. Like he just he just walked out of a portal from another dimension or something. The way that the, the crowd is reacting to him and just people fleeing in terror. I mean, you always talk about fans being afraid of him in general, but you really see it here. I mean, he'll just turn his head and you'll see about 30 people just run about yeah. 10, 10 feet in the other direction. And he didn't even do anything. And then they do this kind of unusual thing, which if you ever see it um, in Japan, they have a, a superstition, right? That if if there's something you're afraid of, if you touch it, it's good luck. I don't know the origin of that, but that's why you'll see people running up to the sheik and quickly touching him. It's almost like the like the the cavemen in 2001 yes. with, with the monolith. They'll tap him and then run away really quickly. It's it's like they're running up and and touching a hot stove where they they know that they're scared to death and it's going to be dangerous but they got to do it once and then they run back. Right. It's it's wild and, and I've seen that in person with it, 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 when the Sheik was in, in I saw him in Market Square Arena on another occasion uh against Bruiser in a cage again a couple years later. And this time he came out with the boa constrictor and I'm sitting with my mom on the third row, right? I'm, uh, what would I be, 14, 15, whatever. And as soon as the sheik came out and came around the corner of the ring, he just lurched without moving. He just kind of like made the move like he was going to lurch toward the front row. And grown men jumped up and dove over the backs of the seats onto the people in the second row. And here comes people jumping over the top of us. And we're like, what the fuck? Just from him just making a motion like I'm coming that way, he had crowd control, the likes of which it's it's hard to explain now because people don't react to wrestlers in person the same way as they did then. But this, you knew this guy, and he was potentially dangerous. If you didn't fucking run, he was going to do something. Yeah. I've I always heard when I got in the business or around the business as a photographer that Mike Lauren. Porky Pig, that folks, that was the name he he was a preliminary wrestler, nondescript, balding looking guy named Porky Pig. But he was not only that he would wrestle on cards when the Sheik was out of his territory because he'd drive the Sheik in the limo. And also, I've heard that he was there to take the bump if the Sheik bladed, ripped up, cut, stretched, hurt in some way one of the fans that tried to attack him. Did you ever hear anything uh, to corroborate that? I know that he acted as his bodyguard a lot of the time, actually. I have a, a picture in the book where it almost looks like a scene out of Goodfellas where <laughs> they're they're in the parking lot getting out of the car. And so, you know, they're in they're in their civilian clothes and 
you know, the Sheik has this long trench coat on and Mike Loren is there with these dark shades on. So apparently he was kind of like his, uh, I don't know, muscle or whatever you want to call it. And I think he even he might he was a, a, a police officer. I don't know if he was retired or if he still was a police officer at the time. But but, yeah, he, he would be used basically in whatever way that that the Sheik needed for him to be used, you know, because they had this thing where if, if a fan is coming at you, well, then you have to do something because if you don't do something, then it exposes everything. So so it's almost like they're putting him in that position. And that's why people a lot of people told me that Sheik used to walk around with those with those razors, those blades taped to his fingers and things. It was partly in case he needed to to kind of cut one of the fans. I mean, crowd control. Put, yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, in case he needed to just slice. Now, now, I'll, I'll, I see what you did there with that. <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. There you go. I know uh, you got in trouble for claiming that the Sheik used razor blades, but you know, his son Captain Ed George was indignant that we would. Yeah accuse the sheik of using blades in the ring or outside apparently but no as i've seen a newspaper article in my collection somewhere and i believe i'd heard the story from the locker room where a guy attacked the sheik and the sheik you know just with his blade fingers and apparently it in the newspaper article it said the guy was knocked through a plate glass door in the process of being arrested and <laughs> suffered cuts. <laughs> yeah. L- Lanny Poffo told me a story because he had, he started out him and Randy, both of them started out working for the Sheik when they were very young. And um, apparently I guess he was in a match with Sheik and there was a riot and he's trying to protect him, you know, cause he was kind of an older guy and he, and he wanted to make sure he didn't get hurt or anything. And he was just shocked how quick the Sheik was with the blade. I think he, he mentioned to me that he he reached out and he slashed somebody. I don't think it was a fan. It might have been uh, – it might have even been – it was someone who got involved in the match and he slashed him. And Lanny said he was so upset just seeing that happen and how quick and, and unreluctant he was to do it. He said just the image just stuck with him for days. He couldn't get it out of his head. Well, and that's the thing is you can't imagine the heat that the Sheik had. And, and for the younger listeners, we talk about that all the time also. But you you could feel in the buildings when this guy was doing his thing, you could feel the people rumbling like there was a lot of people that if they thought they could get away with it, they would have. That was the only thing stopping them is either – I'm going to go to jail or more importantly, this guy's going to fuck me up because they, they believed in him and and they'd heard a lot of those stories, but the heat that he had, you know, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to stand out there in the crowd and speak to people while he's wearing swimming trunks and, you know, <laughs> empty handed. And here comes the crowd. He's going to get back to the locker room and deal with it. However he needs to. Right. And there's the story in the book, too, about um, there was a guy who and and I think this might have been even more than one person. There was a guy who was a so-called legitimate athlete. Maybe he might have been an amateur wrestler or something. And he was running his mouth about how the Sheik was a phony and he knew who he really was. No, I'll tell you, he was was from the the University of Michigan. It's in behind the curtain. It's in behind the curtain. My my wonderful graphic novel. (laughs) That's in the book, too. That, yeah, it will rival your uh, your sales. But, yeah, the the shooter, he and this was, you know, in in Detroit one time that the, the shooter from one of the local colleges 
thought pro wrestling was bullshit and he had found out because of the local connection that the Sheik was really Ed Farhad and he comes in, like he said, and, and starts running his mouth and somebody goes and gets the Sheik and the Sheik comes out and the guy turns around and looks at him and the Sheik's hand just shot out around the guy's neck, pinned him up against the wall and nose to nose with him just real quietly because nobody ever heard Sheik speak English. Mm. He said, my name is Ed Farhat and I will kill you. <laughs> and the guy, oh, and he let him go and the guy took off and nobody ever saw him again. Right. If you yeah. looked in those eyes, you would believe that you were doomed. That was the thing about him that everybody talked about was the eyes. He would go into that zone he was in and you looked in the eyes and you said, okay, this is, this ain't a work. Very intense. And he had those dark eyebrows, just heavy eyebrows, very menacing expression that he always had on his face. And he would even use that in everyday life. Apparently, if he was trying to intimidate people, he would just kind of flash <laughs> them a look. But, you know, before I forget, I want to mention, too, the that Market Square Arena match, the steel cage uh, with Bruiser and Sheik. There's a photo from that match in the book. So, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. There's a picture from it. I got to look for me in the third row. Um, <laughs> well, it's a close up. So, you know, I don't know. But then, you know, as as often happens with a lot of celebrities in a variety of of endeavors. He couldn't quit. He couldn't stop. He couldn't stop being the chic. It went into the when the the whole FMW thing and they've set him on fire. I mean, a lot of a lot more people today may know about the Sheik's 90s exploits in Japan with Onita, the exploding ring and all the other stuff because of the FMW dark side of the ring and things like that. This has been gone over. But this is a guy, the Sheik, at that time, he was. Almost, he was almost 70 or right past 70 when he was doing some of this stuff. And even though, I mean, he looked not good. And even though he had all that magnetism from years gone by, he just, it, it had gone too far. You couldn't summon that. It, it, it was reputation only by that point. And the name and the, it was sort of like a freak show thing. The Sheik is going to be in the barbed wire exploding fire ring match and whatever. And it just is kind of sad. Well, it's it's like it was the only place he could go, basically, because it's people have said, you know, when you become a legend in Japan, they don't forget about you like they do here. And there's some truth to that because there were there were a lot of people that were still willing to buy into it in a way that they had already abandoned long before in the United States. I mean, he had, he was a non-entity by that point. I mean, by the time you even get to the end of the seventies into the eighties, no one even wants to work with him. And his act was just stale and he was just seen as a dinosaur, but, but they wanted him. And Onita especially wanted him because Onita had remembered him from working for Baba. Onita was a young boy. Onita was carrying his yeah. bags and things. And the Sheik was like a god to him. And I, at the time, people weren't even sure over there if he was still around, if he was still alive, let alone wrestling. And and they they somehow got a hold of him, contacted him. And his condition, of course, was I'll come, but my nephew has to come with me, which is it kind of serves two purposes with Sabu, because number one, there's the idea that his uncle and this is very true, was trying to help his career and was trying to really get him seen by the right people. 
But there was also the element of I need somebody that is going to be able to do the work because, yeah. I can't, you know, he could hardly even get in the ring at that point. But but, you know, he 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 had fallen on hard times. I mean, that's that's the fact of it is that he he needed money. He was in poor shape. He was in poor health. And it was an opportunity. They were offering him ten thousand dollars a match. How in the world could you say no to that? I mean, I would say yes to that now. And I've never <laughs> been the ring. So, um, cause it was what the, the run with Baba, what was the last, they, they just, they changed after what the early eighties, it just, it, it wasn't going to go anymore. The newer generation of Baba's talent was coming in and, and he spent, Sheik spent most of the eighties not making any money. And like you said, you know, that 40 room mansion and etc everything fell into disrepair it just he he had lived so big i mean the stories of him dropping you know tens of thousands of dollars in las vegas at the nwa meeting at the crap table and not even blinking now you know the income had been cut off and he couldn't go out and do that again so the i think i got to see his last hurrah in person the 88 great american bash in detroit that would have been the last really mainstream appearance he did in the United States and drew the biggest crowd in uh, Crockett history in Detroit. Yeah, that was the last because time he was on the card. That was the last time he worked for a major American promotion. And all, I mean, by 81 was the he, last. he was booked. He was booked the next month. And you remember that right. story? Uh, he, he no showed because they didn't send him 10 grand the the first show drew a hundred grand and the sheik always gets 10%. They didn't send him 10 grand. So he no showed the next one, even though he needed money. Right. And, but these were the kinds of just bad decision-making that was going on <laughs> at the time. I mean, you know, but that's part of what contributed to all of it. And the thing with Baba, his last tour was 81 in Japan for Baba. Yeah. And part of the reason for that too, was the fact that in 82, he wound up getting blacklisted by the. National Wrestling Alliance for working with Jim Wilson and Thunderbolt Patterson and running against Jim Barnett in Atlanta. And so Baba is an NWA member. So that was also another reason why. I mean, yes, he was getting old and the act was getting old, but uh, there was also that. And that that, you know, when you think that's not a great decision, because obviously and everybody knew Jim Wilson and Thunderbolt Patterson were not going to make a go of a promotion in Atlanta that thing was a fiasco from the start and and Sheik also was working for the Pafos ICW because they had had a relationship since Randy and Lanny worked there uh obviously Sheik and Angelo had known each other for years and years since the 50s and Randy and Lanny had worked in Detroit so he was trying to help them but that put him on the outs with well, honestly, all the American promoters that probably weren't going to book him anyway, but at least he he didn't have to piss Bob off. He had a tough relationship with the other NWA promoters anyway. He was sort of like a – he was kind of the black sheep. I mean they just uh, – the, the the relationship he had with Mushnick was kind of emblematic of that where they they kept him at arm's length sort of. They There's a letter that's in the book that Tim Hornbaker, who is the king of research – I mean I just bow, bow to him. But he had a letter that – a couple of letters between Sam Mushnick and uh, Johnny Doyle and – even and they're talking about how they're embarrassed at the idea that the yeah. Sheik is the is the promoter in Detroit and they're afraid or embarrassed to even tell people because it just makes the business look bad. So there was a lot of that too. And and that I think was partly why he was running against them. He just felt screw it. My company's out of business. Nobody helped me out. So screw these guys. I'm gonna do what I want. 
Well, you know, the other promoters, there was an element. I mean, he had the personal friends that we've talked about, but there was an element of this is freak show bullshit. We don't want that. Uh, I've I've told the story that when Jerry Jarrett was trying to get television in Cincinnati in the early 80s after she had already folded and gone away before Crockett ended up getting TV and making Cincinnati a massive success, right? Jerry Jarrett and Lance Russell went up there and the station manager, I think it was Channel 5, which was the last station that aired Sheik's program up there. He said, come back here, I want to show you something. And he went in his office and he took a tape off his shelf. So you know this is something that he had kept there on purpose, right? And he sticks it in the machine and it's the Sheik got a job guy on his studio TV He's got a snake. He's got the guy over the ropes. He's got the snake in one hand and a blade in the other hand. And because it's a close-up, you can see him blading the guy. Instead of the sheik, instead of the snake biting him, causing blood, he's cutting him with the razor blade. It's a close-up. Yeah, and I and, think... And that's when the, the manager said, this right here is why I will never have pro wrestling on my television station. And they just had to get up and walk out. Because that's the thing. It... The same thing that the Sheik did to sell all those millions of tickets because of the heat and the chaos, it turned off the people that you needed to partner with in order to run the promotion, the TV or the newspapers or whatever that didn't want to get involved in that, which then led to uh, you know uh, other promoters potentially being penalized because of the you know what that style, the taste it left in people's mouth. So that was at the root of a lot of the issues with him and the other promoters. Yeah. And they were more than happy to book him when he was making them a lot of money. You know, they, maybe they held yeah. their noses and did it, but they did it. But then once that stopped happening, I think that was the point where everybody was like, well, we don't need this guy anymore. So we're going to, yeah. you know, we're going to just kind of leave him out in the cold. And, 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 and you could control that as we mentioned by bringing him in, you know, sparingly and then backing off on any chaos. But like you said, it also came down to, but yes, he will put people in the building, just cold, just the, no angle done. He, he never did promos just to advertise the chic and everybody knew, oh shit, something's going to fucking happen. Yeah. Um, and, and but then if we talked about the the sad days in Japan when he was older and he went with Sabu and they set him on. And that's the thing that pretty much contributed to the last big decline in his health when they set him on fucking fire. Right. Yeah. He had, he had a heart attack. I mean, they had a, they had that fire match where the ropes are on fire. Everything's on fire. And here's this guy, I mean, pushing 70 and the, the, the barbed wire is melting because of the fire and they're in there and he could hardly get in the ring. So how's he going to get out? You know, and you've got, uh, it's, I think Tarzan Goto and and Onita and, and Sabu and, and they're flying out of the ring and then Sabu, you know, he flies out of the ring and then thinks, Oh my God, my uncle's still in there. He looks (laughs) back, he sees the poor guy in there and you got to remember, you know, and I'm thinking this when I'm writing it, we think of the Sheik and he's this monster and he's this maniac. This this is a grandfather. This is somebody's grandpa now. This is with a, an artificial hip. Right. This is this poor old guy, and he's stuck in there. And they had to go in there and get him out. And he he's got you know 
all these burns on his back and you watch the video of it and he's outside the ring finally and he's still in character the guy is still taking swipes throwing fire yelling and you know in his in his gibberish and everything and he's he's burning up from fire and then i guess he he slipped into a coma after that and got out of, you know, he, he, they sent him home early. I mean, I guess, I guess. Yeah, that, oh, well, you know. shucks. Yeah. Coma, <laughs> he went back. might as well go home. But then he came back. He took a couple of weeks off. Uh, some people, I, I think sometimes people think that was the end of it. It wasn't. He took a couple of weeks off, recovered, and then went back and, and, and kept working. And that, you know, and again, when we talk about you just can't give it up. You just can't quit. A lot of stars, a lot of celebrities don't know when to say, I've done it, enough is enough. And that's a classic example. But still, you got to admire the guy's commitment 50 years, almost after he started in this business. He still wants to be himself. He still, that's the sad part about it is that he was still in his own mind. He was still the sheik. And a lot of people, you know, the sheik was still uppermost in their minds. He just didn't look like necessarily the sheik anymore at that point. And then that's where it was, it was sad. But he had, as we mentioned at the top of the interview, gone to so many lengths all through his life to keep people from knowing the real deal. We've told the stories that even when, when Bobo Brazil would come over to the fucking house, He'd eat in a different room than the sheik so that the family wouldn't see him sitting together. You know, he went to that kind of lengths to create this, this image, this persona of the sheik and carried it till the, the day he died, including in the, uh, the, this is the most poignant capper I can think of for his story. You mentioned, and we'd heard that, that the, the preacher at his funeral called him by his real name once and referred to him as Sheik for the rest of the ceremony. Yeah, that's true. And I even reached out to that guy. Believe it or not, I found <laughs> the priest because I have the uh I have a copy of the funeral card and and that's in the book as well, but with the name of the reverend and you know, we talked a little bit and he confirmed it that um that was the case that they you know, everyone just Called him Sheik. His grandkids called him Grandpa Sheik. His, yeah. you know, his his nieces and nephews called him Uncle Sheik, and that's just uh, who he was. Uh, Joyce called him Sheik. I mean, if if you called on the phone and asked for Ed, he would cuss you out and hang up. There's no Ed here. I called once to the Sheik in 1988. Kevin Sullivan gave me his number. He said when I'd done promos plugging the Great American Bash in Detroit, I'd mentioned. The Sheik also and done a little promo for that just because for fun, nobody told me to do it, but I love the Sheik. And Kevin Sullivan said, he liked it. He wants you to call him. And I called and he said, make sure you ask for Sheik. <laughs> well, and, he, and he knew. He was very difficult to understand because he had that fast way of talking with that kind of accent. But, uh, you know, he just, he, the Sheik thanked me for doing a promo for him. So I've, I've joined the company of Eddie Creechman and Abdullah Farouk, but um, but Brian last, you have, uh, you've been silent through this whole ordeal, but, uh, you've jumped in on this book also and, and have read, uh, some of it that's coming out on April 12th. Pre-orders are available now at, at, uh, you can order at Amazon 
And uh, if you pre-order the book, you will get yours first come, first serve. So don't wait till April 12th, because by then, they may be in a back printing. But anyway, Brian Last, do you have anything, any questions that we have not covered on this subject, the Sheik? Well, just one question I'll throw at Brian Solomon, who uh, did so much research and whose last name I feel compelled to use because there are two Brians on the call. Yeah. But Brian <laughs> Solomon, when you look at the decline of the Detroit territory, and you could say he was blackballed by 82, obviously he was out of business before then, and there was a period where everything felt like it was going downhill. You still hear people talk about big-time wrestling, big-time country. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm yes. curious, when you look at the downfall of the Sheik, how much of it was purely what we would now call the creative, the booking of the Sheik, the Sheik's booking of the Sheik, and how much of it would you say coincides with the decline of really Detroit, the decline of the Motor City, with the decline of the auto industry strictly being in, or not strictly, but primarily being in Michigan and Detroit. And we would see as the decade of the 80s went on how it affected Detroit and the suburbs around it. But in terms of the decline of the area beyond wrestling, how much of that do you think contributed to the decline of the wrestling company? It's a complicated web of things, and the creative is only one of those things. And I don't even know if I would say it was the main thing, but it certainly didn't help. Um, like you said, I mean, Detroit was uh, becoming a wasteland, unfortunately. And, and we've seen that over the years, even after that. Detroit has was becoming a city in crisis. The, the automotive industry drying up and even the parts manufacturers going elsewhere – uh, people leaving the city, the the a lot of urban blight and crime. I mean, even the Detroit Red Wings, who played at the Olympia, would have to. They started instituting, um, you know, supervised parking because they had to prove to people that their cars wouldn't be stolen if they came <laughs> to the hockey games. And and sometimes people say that that contributed to the Bruiser losing the war because he was at Olympia, which was in a tougher neighborhood than Kobo, and some people were afraid to go. But there's a lot of things that were going on. There were riots. I mean, I talk about in the book how in that era, that that summer of 67 and where you've got riots happening everywhere. I think it might be 68 if 68. I come off on my year. 68. Uh, one of the biggest ones. I mean, it's historically big. It was like almost as as bad as something you'd see from the in the, the Civil War riots where they burned down all these buildings and people were killed and police and civilians and maimed and killed. This is all happening right around, you know, <laughs> these arenas. I talked about how the Sheik, one of the reasons why he decided to drop the U.S. title to Bobo Brazil was to sort of give something to the people of Detroit th that were suffering from all this racial strife. And he was trying to give something back, at least to the fans, that they would finally get to see their hero, who was an African-American, defeat the hated Sheik. So, you know, the city was struggling for a long time. You also had things in the Sheik's personal life, too. And the way I address it in the book, you know, when I approach this, Look, everybody has things in their life that they're not proud of and, uh, you know, wrestlers, uh, uh, their lives on the road. And I, I didn't feel the need. I, I don't want to bury anybody. I don't, I don't want to just tell tales out of school and just kind of badmouth people for the sake of doing it. But the way I looked at it was if it's an integral part of the story, I can't leave it out. And I can't talk about 
the downfall of Sheik's wrestling promotion without talking about his personal contributions to that. You know, he had um, a surgery done. I think it was in 74 or 5, might have even been 76. He had an operation to remove his his gallbladder. And in those days, that was... I remember that big scar. Yes, right. He had that lightning bolt scar across his abdomen. Because in those days, there was... Forget about laparoscopic. I mean, they were... It was like, you know, the frog in in biology class, uh, the way that they would get that out of you. And so the painkillers and stuff sort of put him on the road to addiction, sadly enough. And this was something that was very, I found, was very hush-hush and understandably, even to this day, some people just didn't want to broach the topic. But there were people who did want, who were willing to broach the topic and confirm it. Because again, I'm not going to put it in the book unless I'm sure. But he did have those kind of struggles and it was damaging his work. It was damaging uh, his reputation in the business. It was contributing to making very, very bad decisions. Um, He was having marital struggles with Joyce. There were periods where they were split up. And and the reason that becomes also bad for business, too, is because Joyce was very well liked. Joyce was, in some ways, the behind the scenes of big time wrestling and she was very well liked in the business, and so there was this attitude of, oh, why is he why is he doing that to Joyce? She doesn't deserve that, which you could understand because she had supported him through all this. She had, I mean, think about it from her point of view. She was a 19-year-old girl who got married into this crazy world. Her <laughs> husband is pre- pre- pretending to be this maniac, and she has to go along with it, and she was all game for it. And then after all that, to sort of feel like your husband is betraying you, which which he was, you know, even though they did reconcile, all these things contributed to him taking his eye off the ball and letting his business just fall apart and go down the drain. And, and Brian, Brian last, I can, I can chime in also with in 1975, I finally talked my mom into, we went up to visit Aunt Lola in Covington on a weekend when the Cincinnati gardens was running. And every time I'd go to Aunt Lola's, I'd watch the Sheik's TV from Cincinnati. I'd been watching it for three years, hearing all these major stars advertise Cincinnati gardens, Cincinnati. So I, please, can we go? Well, of course I was a year late cause the war was over and we go in there 1975. I, there may have been 400 people in the Cincinnati gardens, which seats uh, a little over 10,000. The Sheik wasn't on the card, but the main event was Abdullah the Butcher against Bull Curry. Not a drop of blood. They used aluminum brass knuckles that they dropped out of the ring and they bounced on the (laughs) concrete floor. And I don't even know who was on the... I've still got the notes around here somewhere, but I don't remember who was on the undercard because it was the most boring, old, slow wrestling show I'd ever seen. Aunt Lola went to sleep in the chair in ringside. And so, and there weren't any riots in Cincinnati at that point. Nothing was on fire. It was just a bad show. So there were other things besides what was going on in Detroit. It just, the bloom was off the rose. Brian, from all the research you did, how many times was the box office robbed? I'm doing air quotes (laughs) over here. In the late 70s. Um, Well, People told me uh, I would get multiple stories of that happening. Um, I used one of them in there, which is the most famous one, which is the Funks. Yeah, that's the one that everybody remembers. And, you know, I had to go back. And uh, when I sent the manuscript in to ECW Press, 
I got some new information and I actually asked them for permission to change something in there because I thought it was important. And I think it came from Dave, actually, Brzezinski, which is that the sheik was not there when that happened. And I think that that is it's important to know that because I don't know if that was just something that they were trying to pull because he wasn't there or if that's something that he would do even when he was there. But he wasn't on that show. It was a Kobo show where the business was going down and the Funks, who were very loyal to him, like you said, because he had known their father and they went way back. They kind of took it. They went out of the way to help him. They went down there and and when it came time to get paid, yeah, I mean, Eddie Jr. (laughs) ran in and complaining that they just had the cash box robbed and they couldn't pay anybody. And um, I think that. He told me, Terry told me that story himself. Now I've heard that it happened a few other times, but that that's the only confirmed story that I got of it. When you talk about problems that the Sheik and the territory had in the late seventies, you know, towards its decline, and there were a lot of problems the Sheik had outside of the ring, would you say that Captain Ed George or Ed Farhat Jr., was he a problem or was he just a wacky son or was he part of the problems that started developing i think from a creative point of view he definitely was part of it because if you if you talk to diehard detroit wrestling fans a lot of times you'll get the impression that it was like the jump the shark moment is when all of a sudden captain ed george is out there and he's being pushed i mean it says a lot that the one time you know that the sheik was really making an effort to create a new top star it was his own son and you know he he was trying to make him into this you know blue collar kind of working class hero baby face and it just wasn't working you know and and on top of that he had also made him the booker which also was a very unpopular decision with the wrestlers where the impression I got from talking to especially some of the old timers was that they just didn't have to listen to him, that he would come in and he would tell them and they would go, yeah, 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 that's what we're going to do. And then they would just do whatever they wanted. <laughs> so so things like that were also hurting the business, I hate to say. And, and, and I feel bad in a way. I know that there's all these stories of promoters, sons, and people like to talk about like George Goulas and people like that. And and I, and I and he's in that category, but I, I I feel like he got put into that spot to a certain degree against his will, and it, he he wasn't really pushing for it. He actually wanted to be a rock star. I mean, music was his thing, and he was trying to get a record deal, and and he kind of got roped into the wrestling, and he it's very telling that he stopped doing it. He only did it for about three or four years. He stopped doing it, not even when Big Time went out of business, but even. Right before that, when things were looking really bad, he just kind of ducked out and just got a regular job. I just don't think that his heart was in it to, to the same degree, and 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 that's really what it came down to. He 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 got put in this position, and I know RVD told me the story that uh, I guess he had heard it from from Sheik that when Eddie Jr. finally approached him and said, "Dad, I don't, I just don't think I want to do this. You know, is it? Would you mind if I if I stopped and?" Sheik was like, well, why the fuck didn't you tell me this before? You, you, I, I'm not making you, you didn't have to be a wrestler. You know, all you had to do was tell me that. Why, why'd you make me do all this with you if you didn't want to be a wrestler? Hey, at least uh, Captain Ed George had a longer and more successful career than Bruiser's son, Leroy Redbone. 
There's so many like that. I mean, he did at least it's every 70s promoter, every single, almost every Every single 70s promoter had a son in the late 70s or 80s who tried to break in and some it worked and some were George Goulas. It makes you wonder why Vince Sr. never tried to force his son to get in the ring. He's the only one who said no. (laughs) He was the only one who said, no, you can't do that. That's and and that's the thing. Vince really wanted to, but his father wouldn't let him, so he had to wait till he was sixty and run <laughs> the thing himself before he could break into business. Oh my God! But hey, um, Brian Brian Solomon Brian S. Uh, the title again of the book is Blood and Fire. Wait a minute, hold on. I've got to find this. I've get, got the subtitle jotted down. Blood and Fire: The Unbelievable Real Life Story of Wrestling's Original Sheik by Brian Solomon. And you can pre-order now on Amazon. Uh, the release date for the actual physical book is April the 12th. But the folks can hear more about it and a lot of other stuff because you've got a new podcast, Brian Solomon, on the Arcadian Vanguard Network uh, administrated by Brian Last. All you Brians. <laughs> That's right. Shut up and wrestle. Brian Last, fill us in on all the details about where we can hear that podcast. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon. Two episodes out already, and they've become very popular. You could check them out. If you want to avoid any of the big players, like let's say Apple, you can go directly to the website, suawpod.com, or of course, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcast, Spotify, it is there right now. And of course, episode one, Stu Sachs. Episode two just came out with the Blue Meanie. Many other great guests coming in the weeks ahead, but Brian Solomon, let me give you a moment to talk about your own show. Sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and I also want to thank you for giving me a platform to do it on, because I was going to try and just kind of do it on my own and see what happened. So I'm grateful to be a part of what you've got going on. But my idea was to do uh, an old school themed wrestling podcast where, you know, there's enough people out there that are talking about the current stuff and they don't need me adding to that. And I I wanted to um, make it very conversational. You know, I started realizing that there's enough people that I know, even just casually, that I have some kind of relationship with that I can talk to and just have conversations with where it doesn't even really feel like an interview. It's more like just two friends talking about what they love about either the wrestling they grew up with or if you're a historian or a writer or whatever, the wrestling that you're of the past that you're interested in. So. I built it around the idea of these conversations with interesting people in and around the business. So I've, I've got the next one is going to be with Keith Elliott Greenberg, who I've worked with for years and years in magazines. Um, I've got Jeff Walton on one coming up, Les Thatcher. And so I'm just trying to keep that theme of just these casual conversations about um, old school wrestling. And my definition of old school, by the way, if for people that wonder is, roughly if it's older than 20 years, it's fair game to talk about. I wanted to mention one thing about the book to talk because the physical copies do go on sale April 12th. People ask me this all the time. There is also going to be a digital edition, like a Kindle edition of the book. Um, And I know there's also going to be an audio book. And the reason I know is because I am actually going to have the chance to record it myself, which I requested that they allow me to do. So you know, there's going to be all different ways to to consume the book, however you want to call it. Just don't I, eat it. 
<laughs> I was about to say the sheik, if it's a necktie or a, an announcer's piece of paper, the sheik will eat it. All right. But anyway, Brian Solomon, thank you very much for, for being a, a guest on the program today. I love talking about the sheik because he's mystified me and captured my imagination since I saw him when I was a kid. And again, one of those people that you only come across in the professional wrestling business, just like you are, Brian, just like Brian last is just like I am. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Th this was a pleasure. I I'm, I'm so glad I got a chance to talk about this stuff with you. Well, that was a great chance to talk to Brian Solomon. And, and again, from the time that I first started watching wrestling, when I was a kid, either in, as I mentioned, Aunt Lola's in Cincinnati for the Sheik show, or then later on when he and Bruiser made up and I got to see him on Bruiser's TV a couple of times he came down to the gardens. I was fascinated by the guy, and you can understand why he drew the money that he drew when he was allowed to do things that nobody else could do because he was the best one at them. Nobody created that aura and that that persona of craziness and violence and mayhem and whatever as well as he did so they let him be the one to do it and nobody else was allowed to because then it would just be as we mentioned chaos and it wouldn't get over but one guy doing that shit on a mainstream basis in the biggest markets in the country for years it worked Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. improves children's health by developing better treatments and technologies. Ranked number five in the nation, we take on the most complex, rare, and life-threatening conditions because all children deserve a healthy future. Learn more at childrensnational.org innovation. Anyway, we won't do that anymore because they... Anytime somebody comes up with something now that three people emit a loud fart over by next week everybody's doing it yeah if the sheik existed now every indie would have multiple matches with guys with pencils running around yeah and and it would just be just a mess but anyway i just i feel bad the way that finally the sheik's body broke down at the end and you know he just couldn't emit that aura anymore and i'm just wondering if Again, back in those days, Brian, the days of the Sheik when he was first formulating himself, if they just had echelon fitness equipment around, he would have stayed in better shape for so much longer, don't you think? I think so, and considering how many rooms he had, he could have had multiple home gyms with echelon equipment. Oh, yeah. In in one room, he could have had the, the sleek fitness screen. In another room, he could have had the smart rower. In another room, the stationary bike, and I could have put the auto-folding treadmill out in the backyard so that the whole neighborhood could watch it fold up by itself. <laughs> I guess so, Folks, yes. If you haven't been working out enough, if you don't want to go to the gym and be around other people sweating and breathing on you, if you want to get in shape but you don't have time to get to the gym, Echelon Fitness brings the gym home to you. Whether it's a New Year's resolution or just a commitment to stay in shape, it can help when you have the world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown. They're world-class and they're instructors and they're choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists like Tina Turner and whoever knows who else. That's my favorite artist. 
And you get a community of hundreds of thousands of people who can give you that extra push. My God, with hundreds of thousands of people pushing you, be like a Who concert in Cincinnati. Be careful. But Echelon Fitness is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation because they provide you with thousands of live and on-demand classes. And I'll tell you what, if you take every single one of these classes, there's thousands of them, you'll sweat your balls off. You can work out anytime, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. Crush them, snort them up, and spit them out. As we mentioned, you can pick your class and climb the leaderboard and cheer each other on. If somebody strikes you the wrong way, you can boo them and hope that they fail. It's all available with Echelon. That's not how it works. No, focus on your own personal fitness goals and not booing people. I don't even think you can boo people, but don't focus on that either. Well, you got to be focused. But the There are no heels in the world of fitness. Well, if you're barefoot, it's up to you. But the instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And if that doesn't work, then they'll start berating you endlessly until you finally perk up and get the lead out of your ass. There's around-the-clock classes for the family, including full-body workout programs, and I'm anxious to see what part of the body that they work out first. One membership will cover a family of five. I guess if you don't have five, then you can bring some neighbors in. Anyway, right now for a limited time only, my podcast listeners get up to $840 off the MSRP on some of these fine products. Get this exclusive discount. You got to text DRIVE, D-R-I-V-E, to 81881. Again, that's DRIVE to 81881 to get up to $840 off the MSRP. Message and data rates may apply. Terms available at echelonfit.com slash SMS. Membership sold separately. Yeah, I don't know. You think the Sheik would have gotten a membership? I don't I think he probably would have stolen one some way. And then if anybody came and tried to take the equipment away, he would have cut him with a razor blade. Or said someone stole the box office. Someone someone stole the auto-folding treadmill, Captain Ed. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's talk about a little more wrestling. Um, if you were anxious for us to talk about Raw or NXT this week, fuck you. NXT, there was no Braun Steiner on the program. It was just that endless parade of substandard green talent that they've been foisting off on us. And on Raw... Before I committed three hours of my life, I read the recap, right? Do you know what they did on Raw? Remember last week when Austin Theory beat Kevin Owens to qualify for the Elimination Chamber to take the place of Shane McMahon, who was unbooked after his daddy got mad at him? That's right. We reviewed that match. Well, this week they had a rematch, and this time Owens won. (laughs) Did he get his spot in the match? No! Austin Theory still goes to the Elimination Chamber because Owens doesn't want to go to Saudi Arabia and who can blame him, but Owens then beat Theory and then came back into a main event tag team match with Seth Rollins and fuck it, they started a whole nother thing and Austin Theory is just forgotten about. It. He's over there. So last week, Theory beats Owens, qualifies for something, gets over. The next week, Owens just beats him back, and then Owens goes on to big things, and you don't see Theory anymore. 
So that was Raw and NXT. Uh, we're going to give SmackDown a chance. We'll talk about that on the drive-thru if they come up with anything. I mean, at least, at least AEW is good for a train wreck or two. And actually, in this case, this week, there were two off-the-charts matches and then other tomfoolery, but uh, that's that. But uh, before we go into that business, Brian, what is going on in the world of the Arcadian Vanguard this week? Oh, another fun, action-packed week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. The latest episode of the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast with Mike Sempervivi and Roman Gomez is out right now. Relive Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, hearing audio and reviews of stars like Ric Flair, Greg Valentine, Roddy Piper, Sergeant Slaughter, and so much more. We are in 1982. Hear it today at midatlanticpod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcast. Also want to make mention once again, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon. Available at suawpod.com or look for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Episode 2 is out right now with The Blue Meanie. A really fun, a really interesting conversation with The Blue Meanie. Find out what a big fan he was before he got into the business. And so much more. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian Solomon. suawpod.com Available wherever you find your favorite shows. And of course... The 605 Super Podcast, The Membership! Go through the archive today at 605pod.com. Of course, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts, The Mothership. Hey. So the big news story of the past couple of days about professional wrestling has been Tony Khan is going to run for Congress, except he's not. Did you hear about this, Brian? I heard about this when it first broke, <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is going to be the greatest thing for the podcast ever. And then sadly, I saw as it was uh, pulled back. But no, but a lot of people were saying, oh, how can they report things like this? This was just made up. This is bullshit because Tony obviously denied it as soon as it, but it went, it didn't go out in the wrestling press. It ran it went out ran out went out in the football press originally because the the reporters down there that cover the Jaguars, but a lot of people were saying, oh, it's bullshit, and they made it up, and how? No, it's not actually made up bullshit. Somebody's fucking with Tony Khan because there. Hold on, I'm going to. Uh, I guess um, a guy named Ian Rappaport is a national insider for the NFL Network and NFL.com, etc. He's got 3 million followers on Twitter, and he's got a, a check mark, so he ought to know the football game. And he had tweeted, Chief Football Strategy Officer Tony Khan has filed, or Jaguars Chief Football Strategy Officer Tony Khan has filed with the FEC, Federal Election Commission, to run for Congress in Florida's 4th Congressional District. Already heavily involved with the Jags, AEW, and Fulham, now Congress? Question mark, question mark. And people have been jumping all over this guy and other reports, but he included a link 
that I'm clicking on now, and I'm going to read you, it goes to the website of the Federal Election Commission, and there is a statement of candidacy that was filed on September 13th, 2021, under the name Tony Khan, Mr. Tony Khan. His address, 1 TIAA Bankfield Drive, Jacksonville, Florida. Democratic Party wants to uh, run for the House of Representatives in Florida District 4. His uh, address, the All Elite Wrestling LLC address, is down as his political committee, as his principal campaign committee. And obviously, somebody fucked with Tony Khan and nobody knew about it until they somebody stumbled across this candidacy filing now here's the thing he didn't hold on i'm going back to more tweeting apparently tony's attorney or some attorney from the state of florida at least tweeted out a clarification that it wasn't correct a statement of candidacy was filed on september 13th however the information in the statement suggests it may not be an actual Tony Khan filing. And if Mr. Khan had actually completed the necessary filing processes, he would be a candidate now, and he isn't. So somebody just, instead of rewriting Tony's Wikipedia page, went in and tried to register him to run for fucking Congress, but obviously couldn't follow through with all of the paperwork, which requires signatures and photos and file legal filings and shit but put his name in there and they just found it from last september tony knew something was up when jericho texted him early in the morning and said you're a democrat <laughs> well i guess now Jer jericho's wife won't have so far to go what's the uh, uh tallahassee is the florida capital right she'll only have to go over to tallahassee to overthrow the next government <laughs> But it, apparently, that's what's uh, that's what's gone on here, and everybody flipped out and went crazy over it. But uh, somebody's playing ha ha with Tony Khan about his uh, political candidacy. What a dream for a politician to run against an opponent whose last name is Khan. <laughs> Every commercial, <laughs> enough of the Khan jobs. We're ready to put Florida back to work. Uh, speaking of back to work, they went back to work this past Wednesday night on AEW television. Brian, did you unfortunately see some of the things that went on? I believe I saw the entirety of the show. Well, again, I don't know. If you could just, you know what? AEW is the first television program I've ever seen in the wrestling business where you could take half of it and put a highlight reel together and it'd be the greatest show you've ever seen. You could take the other half yeah. and put it together. It'd be the biggest fucking joke that you've ever looked at in your life. Here's a question for you, though. With all the talk that Tony's done about the forbidden door this past week, I'm just wondering. If the invisible hand goes through the forbidden door without wearing a glove, does it need to get a blood test? <laughs> Just know. a question I had. Anyway, let's talk about this program real quick. Certain things deserve some time. Uh, a lot more doesn't. The opening segment. Um, 
they tried to do the big thing for MJF. Wardlow to the ring, setting up the cardboard cutouts of MJF beating Punk last week. And they had old George Hamilton Roberts intro FTR and Tully and Spears. Spears ca- comes out looking silly, and it makes it funny. He's got a jacket on with no fucking shirt and the skull cap on, carrying the chair, and it just, it, I don't know. But anyway, finally, they wind up the big intro for MJF, and they have Justin Roberts read that whole thing, and it was some good stuff in there. And he comes out being carried on a throne like Lawler in Memphis coming into the Coliseum. And did you see the guys carrying him were trying real hard not to fucking trip and fall. And they did that with Lawler in the WWF as a spot one time. It wasn't real, but it they these guys had to go down a ramp. So it looked like they were suffering. And uh, do we have any, was that just a random throne girl that he was making out with like two anteaters or is that somebody that he's involved with? Or I did have she to just figure. decide to go for it? Yeah, I haven't heard anyone talk about that or any confirmation, but I have to figure it may be someone he knows at a minimum. Um, but anyway, it was seven minutes into the show before MJF finally spoke, but that's it's better than some of the matches, so... He, they're still teasing the thing with Wardlow. He went to thank the person who made his victory over Punk possible, and it was Spears, not Wardlow. And then they showed a video of MJF's new shirt on the screen, and and I get they're missing Keith Mitchell already because once they got the video up on the screen, then they couldn't fucking get the camera shot back. But finally, MJF's cutting the promo. He's bragging, and out comes Punk. No music. He's serious. He's on the stage. Tony Schiavone goes over to him. And I got to be honest, and you know how much I like MJF. But Punk picked this up when he started talking because it wasn't really headed anywhere. There was a lot of... They put the production over the content. We were 10 minutes into the show or better, and all we'd seen is the glorious entrances and the heels being cocky and it just did you did you feel like that that it wasn't really kicking in until punk came in and started picking up the pace a bit you needed punk to come in and i thought it certainly picked up the pace and he has a real intensity that's great and it took a while and i agree with you 100 percent about spears we'll get into tully in a little bit and the other thing is justin roberts i've heard him announce wrestlers deaths i think (laughs) and it wasn't as painful as it was for him to do this it was a little over the top i think in some of those elements so punk brings out darby and sting and the and they've all three got the black baseball bats and punk wants a rematch with mjf because he won illegally of course but then basically they come out with the the this is again back and forth and it took a while punk is daring wardlow to drop the group you need to subsist on your own they're just taking advantage of you and you know punk wants mjf but punk also wants wardlow a rematch with him and then dax steps in and he wants a rematch because they're still pissed that they got beaten by darby and sting i think he just wants a rematch because he wants to wrestle on tv once in a blue moon and then Punk pitches the idea of the three of them against FTR and MJF, and MJF won't do that. And he offers FTR versus Punk and any partner except for Sting and Darby. And if the if the Punk and his 
partner besides Sting and Darby win over FTR, then he gets a rematch with. <sighs> the best thing about this was that the opening segment sets up a match later on, and we've been bitching about right. that, right? Exactly. So yeah. they did that, but it was confusing to get there because everybody wants something else. And is anybody going to be sitting there taking notes like I am? Or were they just a little confused? And at the end, we'll talk about the ratings, but I believe the ratings were up this week. And again, yes. you show Punk in the opening segment. What have we always said? Then he goes away. Then you never see Punk again. Showed him in the opening segment. It ran a little long, but they had a lot of things that they clearly were trying to get into this one <laughs> segment, including the Wardlow tease. But it made you realize that Punk and FTR were going to be on later in the show. And who's his partner going to be? So... In that sense, they did something right. Well, and also, and we'll talk about the ratings afterwards. Remind me of that. Don't let me cut that off. But also, they had the big reveal that they had teased. And there was curiosity about that because there's so many people it could be. Because the WWE keeps fucking up and giving their opposition every bit of talent that they need. So, uh, all these things, that's why I'm... This segment was not bad. And we could have been looking at the Pudding Gang... So that's definitely a plus. I would have loved to have this 15-minute segment done in eight or nine, I think, is the only thing uh, that I had a problem with. But anyway, so they've set up what I thought was the main event. Then I realized, oh, wait, they got the Texas Death Match. So at least that match is later on in the program. We get to see FTR, we get to see Punk, we get whoever. So now Tony Schiavone is in the back again. <laughs> They've either got 16 interviewers or poor Tony is everywhere. And and he's never looks out of breath or or disheveled. Uh he's in the back with Andre Oleolio or aka Mushmouth. I've been binging that Cosby documentary too now that you put me onto that. And uh I loved Fat Albert when I was a kid, but Mushmouth was my favorite. Anyway, why are they portraying Andre as a complete blithering simpleton. I I understand he can't speak English or apparently Spanish because nobody can understand what the fuck he's saying. But we haven't established that he has the IQ of a fucking baked potato. And he's still talking about the kid that works for Sting and they've told him and listening to Andre try to talk is like enduring a root canal. And he's still wanting to buy Darby from Sting or, or something like that. Um, and then we come to Wardlow's match. And this time the opposition has stepped up a little bit. He gets the Baker, formerly the partner of the Butcher. The, we never see the Butcher anymore. So now the Baker had to go it alone. And this was a little bit longer match. Went through a break. And the Baker got him a little offense in. And then he got powerbombed four times. And then Spears comes in. To, and Do you think they planned it like this, or do you think they stole our first review? Remember the first time Wardlow beat somebody with the power bombs, put his foot on him, and then I said, and then Spears came in and wore the guy with a chair and stole all the spotlight. They didn't say that then, but then ever since he's done it, the announcers say, he's stealing his spotlight. So is that the way they meant it to be, or are they stealing our review of what it actually looked like? Well, they're certainly listening. 
I'll put it that way. Well, they're listening. They're just not heeding. So the next big segment, uh, let's talk about this for a second. A meeting with the dinner circle. Jericho's hot because Santana and Ortiz disrespected him, wouldn't tag him in in their match a week or two ago. He's called a mandatory team meeting. There's Sammy's out there. There's Jake Hager's out there. And they and Jericho are dre- the ridiculous faux biker gang outfits with the pleather vests with somebody flipping a bird and on a patch on one of them. And Hager's wearing a a, a biker gang pleather vest with high water sweatpants. I don't know what is this a giant midlife crisis for Jericho that everybody's been drug into? Yes, although we could argue about when it actually started. I think it's been going on for a long time. But do, does he think they look like the Hell's Angels or what? They look ridiculous. They don't look as ridiculous as he does. I don't know. Go back and look at Hager's pants. Well, Hager's been dressing like a golf dad since episode one of Dynamite. Yep. Does does his he's wearing a, the pants meant for a person a foot shorter than he was? What was that all about? Anyway, Santana and Ortiz come out, and they and and Santana did a great job. Told Jericho he's the one that's been holding him down that he only cares about himself. They don't want to play second fiddle anymore. It was a baby face. Even though Jericho is talking to them like they're the heels and he's the baby face, they're actually the baby faces. They're in the right. The things that they are saying are true. And the people want apparently them to fuck off out of the dinner circle. So anyway, Santana cut the good promo. And he told Jericho to thank Ortiz for talking him out of dropping him a long time ago because they want to be the tag team champions. Jericho got in, hey, I'm the influencer because GFY worked out so well for him. He's just (laughs) fucking Moxley came in and wiped his fucking ass on Jericho's new trademark before Jericho was even seen on that program. So now he's trademarking the influencer. And Jericho tries to tell Santana and Ortiz all the things that he's done for them. They're the ones that lost to the Young Bucks. Had to get the. You're trying to get a tag team over, so you want to remind people that they got beat by two middle schoolers. And he says maybe he invited the wrong people from LAX. Should have been Homicide and Hernandez. And Santana snatches him by the throat. And then Sammy breaks it up. You want to know what I wrote right then, Brian? No. Oh, yes, I do want to know what you're right <laughs> You stooged yourself. No, no, I actually do want to know. No, you don't. We know that now, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> I wrote, can this please fucking go somewhere? Yeah. So then Sammy tried to be the voice of reason, and finally he took off his vest and said, unless they figure all this shit out, he had to get the word shit in, he's quitting and he walks off. Now Ortiz is on Jericho defending Eddie Kingston. And he says, let me give a little history lesson. And I wrote, oh, God, don't. How far are you going to go back? But the history lesson he gave was a, a challenge for a tag team match next week, Santana and Ortiz against Jericho and Hager. And Jericho agrees to it, and then he threatens he's going to have to make changes. Hopefully they can dissolve this 
past its expiration date group so that the people in it besides Jericho can have a chance to prosper a little bit. I think this was the longest promo segment ever held, and Santana was very good. What do you think? I thought Santana was excellent. And we've been saying for a long time that it looks like he's been working out. He looks like a serious athlete. Whenever he talks briefly, it's good. We actually got to hear him here, and he sounded like a legit guy. You believed him. And even little things like turning to the camera when Jericho said something outrageous, almost like he had to laugh and he wanted to look at the audience like, you got to be saying this too. This is ridiculous. (laughs) You know, this. there are elements of this, and it did run long. There are elements of this, though, that I thought were maybe the best Chris Jericho work in a while. Because we know Chris Jericho is always looking for a way to get himself over. And boy, a biker vest and Botox certainly don't go well together. (laughs) But I think Chris Jericho may have seen some of the reaction Cody's getting and how they're pussyfooting around. He's like, oh, I'm going to take this and go all the way with it. I'm completely out of touch. And I'll show you how (laughs) out of touch I am. I haven't held anyone back. We'll see where this goes. But for the first time in a while, I cared about Chris Jericho in this promo. Now, we'll see if it lasts. I don't think it will. But Santana and Ortiz were serious. They felt like legit guys that you could meet. Jericho was still acting like he was on Raw. And that's one of the big problems. And he got away with it a lot in early AEW because people were just excited to have a star. And he was doing good work, primarily. But when you see Santana and Ortiz, previously when you've seen a Kingston, a Punk, Danielson, there are guys that seem like they're talking from the heart. And we know they're not. It's wrestling. I mean, it may be elements of what they're saying that's true, but it's wrestling. Jericho seems like he's on Monday Night Raw. Should they just fold the tent on Jake Hager? What value does he really bring? That's the question. While they're looking at contracts to renew and people they're going to be bringing back, objectively, and I don't know the guy, so I really can't say anything bad about him personally. I'm just looking at him as someone who's seen his body of work. What value does Jake Hager bring to AEW for what you have to think is a substantial contract? What value is there? Would anyone pay? Forget about that. No one, there are no house shows. Is anyone going to be interested in a Jake Hager main event on a show? That's the question. Well, and that's when they first, when he first came in, when they first started, they tried to put him over as the big MMA fighter, a big guy. He had uh, the advantage of having some wins on television that most guys they bring in don't get at the start. They get them a year and a half later when it's too late. And since then, what the fuck has he done? And, and it's not like he looked great. Remember, we said, eh, you would think if he was going to get better as long as he's been doing it, he'd be, be there by now. But now he just stands around and with that fucking mooch face on. And I don't, Dutch Mantel used to manage him in the WWE. I think of a Dutch Mantel line when I think of Jake Hager. He couldn't draw you a deep breath. And that's and now yeah. he's just hanging around. Anyway, then we come to Tony back in the parking lot. <laughs> I I know these are pre-taped, but some of these days, when I got more time on my hands, I got to put the stopwatch on how long it takes allegedly Tony Schiavone to get from the desk at ringside out in the parking lot just to see what they're doing. But he's with Rapongi Vice. Apparently, Trent, no last name, and now no hair. Well, he has a last name now. They got the rights to the last name. What what name? 
Trent Beretta. How do you need to get rights to that? Well, he was Trent Beretta, and then they just called him Trent because they lost the ability to call him Beretta. I think it was a New Japan thing, maybe. And now that they're in good with New Japan, they call him Trent Beretta again. Are you fucking kidding? I could be wrong. Someone will jump in. New Japan gave a shit that they used the guy's last name on American television. It wouldn't know none of the fans in America give a shit about the guy to begin with. Uh, anyway, Trent Beretta and Rocky Romero are apparently Rapongi Vice in Japan. So they actually pitched. Here's Tony Schiavone with Rapongi Vice. Now, I know I don't watch the Puddin' Gang, so I don't ever watch Trent. I watched a Rocky Romero match. He's very good until they put him in the Puddin' Gang. But have they been talking about Rapongi Vice that anybody in America that's not a Japanese fetishist would know that that's a thing? If you are not someone who watches New Japan or has watched it in the past and you only watch AEW, you may have heard a brief mention in passing by Excalibur on commentary, but you would have no idea who they are and also why it's a different tag team and not the best friends that you're seeing Trent with. Yes. And, and of course, then all the AEW apologists are going, well, you got to watch YouTube. Well, fuck you. If it's not important enough to put on the real television program, it's not important. So they're doing an interview when the Hardly Boys walk in and start a fake fight by telling them, well, I guess it's time now for us to start a fight. They actually say that. And as they start the fight, Adam Cole comes in from behind and nutshots one of the Rapongis. And then the Hardly Boys get the other one to do their fake knee thing. They're, what do they call it? The whatever trigger. They're always, they stole, who stole the trigger? Was it Olivier stole his V trigger from their knee trigger or they stole their knee trigger from his V trigger? Or why is everybody triggered? I don't know, but they're certainly triggered. Well, it looks as phony as a football bat. And then a guy in a leather jacket walks in with his back to the camera and joins in the fight and grabs, I think it was Trent, and threw him headfirst into the truck in the parking lot. And I'm like, what the, who the fuck? And they said, oh, it's, also the guy's back is to the camera. And I think it was excrement, excrement said, it's Jay White. And waited for, I guess, trumpets from heaven to blow and the gates to open. Hallelujah. Jay White. Has the name Jay White been mentioned on this television program ever? Never that I'm aware of. Has Jay White, to your knowledge, ever wrestled in the United States of America? I've never seen a match of his. I know he wrestles for New Japan. But has anybody in this country ever even heard of him? And it's not even like the Rapongi Vice. At least we've seen these two chuckle fucks on the TV program before. This is a brand new guy that's never wrestled in this company, possibly never wrestled in this country. And they say his name like John Cena just walked in and everybody would know. Oh my God, it's Jay White. The world's about to change. No, it's not. It's like saying, hey, there's Barney, Barney Google. What? I was starting to be at my wit's end. Apparently, this guy's a big deal in New Japan, too, right? Well, 
I believe so, and I've heard good things about him, but when they debut him in a skit with the Young Bucks, it tells me exactly how he's going to be used. There's now a track record of guys coming in, they do something with the Young Bucks, and next thing you know, you don't want to watch him anymore. You've heard good things about him. Have you ever seen him wrestle? I don't think so. Okay. But I'm not sure. Well, but here's the thing. Before we take to heart the good things we've heard you know who says most of the good things about people that wrestle in japan and then you know the people who parrot the things that that guy says so i gotta see this guy for myself before i'm gonna go out on a limb and say he's worth a shit so we'll find out apparently because now he's here meanwhile speaking of jay's jay lethal on TV, does a job and disappears again. But we get Jay fucking White, whoever that may be. To make a quick correction from earlier, apparently Tremperetta was the name he used in WWE and Florida Championship Wrestling, but with a different spelling. <laughs> so when he went to AEW, he just used Trent. It wasn't New Japan. It was a WWE trademark issue. He has since, I believe, received the trademark for Beretta spelled B-E-R-E-T-T-A. I bet you he could have made an easy deal with the WWE. They would have allowed him to use the name if he would have just not told anybody he ever worked for them when his mother pulls up with him in the minivan. All right, but we'll we'll find out about old Jay White, see if he's worth a shit or if it's another one of Uncle Dave's fucking fever dreams and Welsh rarebit fucking nightmares. But then... Came the big reveal, Brian. Came the big reveal. Isaiah Cassidy was to face the debuting talent that they'd been milking. That's, I think, along with, as you may, you know, punk wrestling and and et cetera, what got them this number, the curiosity factor. Because the one thing, they, they do great debuts, shocking debuts of stars in AEW. They just then usually do the wrong thing with them from the start, and people are more interested in them the first time they see them than they are each succeeding time after that. However, I think this one may be different. Before I talk about the match, I will just say that this was Isaiah Cassidy, and his opponent was revealed to be Keith Lee, old Bearcat Lee. And I think this is without doubt the best debut match in the history of AEW. They did it right for once. I'm not sure if I could say they. Maybe it was all Keith Lee. I don't know. I don't know this guy. But the punk surprise debut and interview was obviously the big debut. But as far as a match, a first match for a new talent coming into AEW. This is the only time that I can think of in the past two and a half years where they got it absolutely perfect. This was stunning. This was exactly what it should have been. This is how you get over. Not only that, but Keith Lee obviously feels like the shackles are off. Feels like he's, he's, he's into this. There was a a world of difference in the way he carried himself and the way he did his shit from when we saw him on WWE television. He was confident. He was in control. He was dominant physically, even when he sold 
It was only for a moment. He came right back. He, he did all of his stuff. He showed the people what he could do. I, it, and he won convincingly, dominantly. That's the way. I don't care whether it's a new guy that nobody's ever seen before or whether it's a big star coming from another company. That's the way you make a fucking debut when you're a wrestler in a match. It was it, perfect. From They showed it. The opening Beal, as soon as he grabbed old Isaiah Cassidy and gave him that Beal across the ring, I've been watching wrestling for 50 years now. I've never seen a Beal like that. Part of it was Cassidy. Obviously, he's a hell of an athlete, but they nailed it. Then they have Keith Lee do the leapfrog in the crossbody, then the slingshot crossbody. But this wasn't just goofy spots or even impressive spots nailed together. He toyed with Cassidy. He had the, the attitude. He'd lay his big bear paws on him. Or he'd give it that body block through the ropes. Hardy's at ringside, and they did a little ha-ha with that. They had Mad Hardy get so disgusted with Cassidy's lack of success that he climbs over the rail and leaves through the crowd. Those Hardy boys never learned the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. <laughs> so then Mark Quinn tried to interfere and he tried to pull the leg and Keith Lee kicked him off. And that was an opening where Cassidy was supposed to do a springboard into a head snap on the ropes, but he missed it. He missed Keith Lee's head, missed something that big. But Keith Lee barely reacted. He, the, the hands got on him, so he kind of sold it like it was a flying face rake. And Lee just gets down to the, to the floor off the apron, still on his feet, and is like selling his face like, what the fuck? And that way Cassidy hit him with a dive, and he went down. But as soon as he gets back in the ring, he's bear-pawing Cassidy all the way across the ring and then swatted him down, hit him with a pop-up into a fireman's carry, and turned that into a turnaround power slam. One, two, three, boom. And he gets his hands in the air, and then the heels attack him. Of course, they have to. And I will say, the afterbirth was not necessary, but at least they didn't fuck it up. But the heels attack him, and he rolls to the floor, and one does a dive, and he catches that guy and drops him on the floor. The other does a dive, and he catches that guy upside down, and power bombs him onto the guy on the floor. And like I said, the afterbirth wasn't really necessary. And the shit sniffing look that Keith Lee gets gets old because he does it a lot. And it's a little smug for a baby face. And they're going to be cheering the fuck out of him for a while unless they fuck this up. So he is a baby face. Uh, so besides the smug shit sniffing look and the afterbirth wasn't really necessary but he did it well this was fantastic it's the first time i can remember on this television program that a star came in and won convincingly and looked like a world beater and did his shit when you first see him it's always the opposite everybody comes in and gets beat and you never see them, and then six months or a year later, they start beating job guys. It's, it's so somebody has either 
taken an interest in Keith Lee that Tony Khan will listen to, and they've told Tony how not to fuck this up. Or perhaps it's Keith Lee himself, and he's smarter than we ever gave him credit for because of the environment he was in over in the other fucking pasture that wouldn't let him be himself and put him in a tennis skirt. I, I, I'm gobs. I was amazed. I was smiling. I was popping. I said, this is perfect. This is fucking perfect. What'd you think? I loved it. I also think, you know, this is a guy that fits in really well with AEW in terms of look because he looked gigantic in the ring. Yeah. In WWE, he was clearly a big guy, but whether it's other big guys there or the size of the ring or whatever, didn't look as big. He looked like a big fucking guy here. <laughs> I will say once Matt Hardy left, which was a good thing, I've never been more sold on the potential for a heel private party as I was after that point of the match, just watching them be heels, try to trip Keith Lee, try to do this and that. I've never been as impressed with Isaiah Cassidy as I was. Usually it's always about Mark Quinn. I personally wouldn't have had it go as long as it did. And I wouldn't have had them get much of anything on Keith Lee. And I probably wouldn't have done the afterbirth. But, you know, everyone does it their own way. But an exciting debut. And here's a guy I want to see more of. So I hope they don't mess this up. Really, really good. I didn't mind the length because it wasn't going 100 miles an hour and they weren't doing too much. When they have these matches go long and they're so competitive with the star you're trying to put over against whoever the fuck and the guy's, you know, giving him all he can handle, that's ridiculous. In this case, I would have had, especially the way they did it, because there's a heel and a baby face, clearly, the heels can cheat and distract and you can get the guy down just so that he can come back out from under it. And that was part of the match is they'd get him down for a second, but he'd come back down from under or come back out from under it because they couldn't keep him down. That was, I didn't mind that part of the match. Um, like I said, I agree with the afterbirths a little much. They've always got to put something on there, a hat on a hat, but, but yeah, this, if they don't screw Keith Lee up now, certainly they can make God, Adam Cole his manager. Well, I was about to say, maybe there's a spot for Adam Cole <laughs> where he can redeem himself. And I was about to say, certainly to God, we will never see Keith Lee versus Pockets. One would have to think. They're, 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 they're that smart, aren't they? I would hope so, but you never know. Of course, it seems they're both baby faces, so that may help. But it does say something. Adam Cole and Keith Lee, just looking at debuts. Adam Cole debuted, and then they immediately upstaged him with another debut. and. For me, at least, he's never recovered, and the work has yeah. gone downhill since. Keith Lee, they debuted, and he came across like a bigger star than he ever was in WWE yes. in one match. Yes. And they didn't upstage him. And they didn't have any... Well, it, whoever Jay White is wandered out earlier, but that's not upstaging this guy. Everybody knows Keith Lee because they've been watching him on television and were hoping he'd show up. And you know what? Modern wrestling right now... Who's the baby face that can get over the most, at least short term, and then you got to do something with it? The guy that the fans think WWE screwed over. Yeah. That's the guy they want to support. So if they don't mess this up, they could really do something special with Keith Lee here. Why were the people going apeshit for Ruby Soho? Because the WWE screwed her over. 
And then they dropped the ball on that. Everybody that comes from the WWE, there it's not the people in the WWE that the fans don't like. They're the top guys. It's the people that they did like that the WWE wouldn't use and fucked around and fired. And now they're naturally over. They're sympathetic figures. All you got to do is not fuck it up, which is why they've been fucking most of them up. Uh, but I, again, Keith Lee, and we, remember I had him when we did the WWE roster a long time ago. I said, who would be the top 10 guys? I think I had him in there, and that's when they fired him. <laughs> and then I said, well, maybe Odyssey Jones can take his place. And the problems we, I've, I've seen potential in Keith Lee from the time we started watching him on NXT. But remember, every time we would see him, it seemed like he got less over. It it was less special. Well, he was was he hamstrung? Was he just miserable being there? And because this was a completely different person. The personality and the the attitude that he had. The style and, of match. Again, he's not doing an NXT yeah. WWE style of match either. Yeah, because he was he was trying to do shit and allowing people to do shit to him over there. The guy was 150 pounds lighter than he was. He was taking bumps. So this was a complete transformation. And now I'm hoping, are we going to hear different interviews or is he still going to sound like Frazier Crane? I mean, I know he's got that element. That's the way he talks, kind of haughty like that. But Hello there. Greetings and salutations. Yeah. I, I get a kick out of it when I think about it. <laughs> I'm just hoping that that's something that Vince and somebody else over there had got a kick out of and told him to do, and he will now sound like a normal fucking adult person and occasionally get mad and have the Hulk smash in his fucking bass in his voice. We'll find out, but he hadn't done a promo yet, but the match was tremendous. And I'll tell you what, the way he's power slamming those guys and splashing them and and cross-bodying them and everything, they're not falling on a mattress there. That's a big old boy to come down on top of you. Boy, I tell you what, though, I'm glad that I got the WWE rings redone years ago, or elsewise he could be making some pancakes. It's not like falling in, for example, a, a Helix mattress or one of these fine all-form sofas. Yeah. It's not soft and comfortable like that. I'll tell you what, folks, with the helix all form sofas you can fall onto these things and it's just like falling into a cloud even if a 350 pound beast was to jump on you they just bounce right off because helix has put the same amount of care and time and premium materials into these sofas and chairs that they make as they do the mattresses and it's the same deal you don't have to go to a store you don't have to look at a bunch of stuff that everybody's raggedy, stinky old ass has already sat on, and you don't have to wait months for it to come after you buy it. All you've got to do is go online to allform, A-L-L-F-O-R-M.com, allform.com, and you could look at this fine merchandise because you've heard us rave about the Helix mattresses, the allform sofas and chairs, same way. You can pick the fabric which is spill and stain and scratch resistant. You can pick the color, the color of the legs, the sofa size, the shape. They've got armchairs and love seats. 
And they, they've even got a special blowjob bench to go along with the love seat. No, they don't. No, they don't? Oh, that's another Not company. officially. Not officially. Not officially, no. But they've got armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight-seat sectional. So there's something for everybody, and you can start small and buy more additions if you want your sofa to grow and change when you move. Or like you have just done, you've moved into San Simeon, and you've got an echo. you got to fill the room up with... You now have a a 72-seat all-form sofa, don't you? There are five seats, I believe, on my all-form sofa. All-form sofa? sofa? (laughs) Well, so you say, all-form sofas are also delivered directly to your home with fast, free shipping. And they'll, they'll bring it right to your door. And then, boom, you just set it up. And you know, again, Brian, from your experience, it's easy. It doesn't take any tools. And uh, and finally, you you get the thing all uh, uh, set up there in your house. And if you don't like it, you don't need to worry about it because you get a hundred days to decide if you want to keep it after you get it set up in the house. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. No need to do what I usually do. And if I buy something and it's not right, I just take it out back and set it on fucking fire. But all form wants to do their part and offers exclusive discounts for teachers, students, military, and first responders, and they also offer financing and flexible payment plans, and a forever warranty. Folks, that's forever. So in your wills, hand down from generation to generation the reminder that in 300 years after nuclear fire showers, if anything goes wrong with this couch, your descendants can get the money back. Uh, I am not exactly sure if that's how it works. It's a forever warranty. It says literally forever in 300 years. That's still part of forever. So keep these things jotted down, folks. Your great, 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 great grandchildren may need them. Anyway, to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash JCE because Allform is offering 20% off all the orders for our listeners at allform.com slash JCE. 20% off. What's 20% off a, a giant couch like this? That works into a lot of money. One seat. 20% off 20% a giant couch like this. Once. I, I, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Allform. All righty then. Um. <laughs> Next on the AEW parade was the match that we had been waiting for. FTR against Punk and a mystery partner. And I wrote, ah, it's not the main event. And I forgot the Texas death match, the main event. But at least we're going to see who the partner is. And they're doing it at the top of the nine o'clock hour. So that was smart for the ratings. That's probably why they kept people. So anyway, we find out who Punk's partner is. Like Mussolini with Moxley. It's Moxley. So, all right. I said, okay, this is going to be the ultimate challenge. Can FTR and CM Punk make this guy have a wrestling match? That was the challenge. And they gave this one time. And I'm not going to go through every every single high point and spot and twist and turn and change and momentum. But Dax and Punk started 
and they wrestled. One tackle, drop down, reverse hip toss, kickoff, headlock, take overhead, scissors, kick out. Wrestling. And then Cash comes in. One tackle, drop down, hip toss, arm drag, more wrestling. I'm loving it. And then Moxley comes in, and he does that weird shoulder-dipping, swerving body language. He looks like he's twisting in the wind. Bez from Happy Mondays, yes. I, I don't know that one. But he locked up with Dax, and they actually did some wrestling. It was headlock, takeover, one tackle, drop down, scoop slam, and then big kick, and then another big kick, and another big kick. He's sitting Dax there, and he's just hitting the ropes and kicking him in the chest. I guess he's trying. And the, the Punk and Moxley worked well together. He said Punk did a backslap tag. Now I know what it's like when a child of mine brings home a bad report card. The disappointment. FTR did a little heat spot on Punk's leg and started heat, and they work like heels, and Punk's selling his ass off, but... It was just a, a false set of heat because they wanted to give Moxley a comeback and then get the heat on him so Punk could have the last comeback. But as a result, they only got like one minute of heat on Punk's leg. And then when he tagged Moxley, Moxley made a comeback, but there wasn't that much reaction because the heat was so short. And then they go into a four-way and both the baby faces d did dives and they all fell down and went to the break. Somehow, during the break, well, I don't say somehow, they got out there, but during the break, they replayed it on the other side. FTR picks Moxley up and double belly-to-back suplexes him through a table at ringside onto the concrete floor as a heat spot. As a heat, he, the referee is counting and he pops up at nine and rolls in. He beats the count back in, but they start the heat on this fucking guy in a regular tag match by double suplexing him through a table on the concrete. So now he can sell. I, Moxley is hopeless. If, if it was FTR's idea, say, Hey, we'll start the heat on you by giving you a double back suplex through a table onto the fucking floor. If he had any idea of what the wrestling business was, he would have said, are you out of your mind? Cut me off with a knee to the back and let me fucking sell. But it's all got to be the garbage, indie, modern, outlaw, goofy wrestling. Anyway, at one point, I thought they were going to do, and it's, they still may come back to it, I thought they were going to do some kind of turn with Moxley and Punk because Moxley, Atomic dropped Dax, but Dax reached back I think that's where he blind tagged, right? And then, but he suplexed Cash and went to the corner for a tag, but Punk wasn't there because he'd been distracted and then nailed off the apron by Dax. So I thought, oh, Moxley's going for the tag. Punk's not there. There's going to be, but they never mentioned it again. Did you see FTR give Moxley the Vegematic? Yes. Just barely. I love you, boys. Dax and Cash. I know you watch the tapes, but there's a reason why that it looked so good when the Midnight Express did it, and one of those reasons was Stan Lane's incredibly deep squat. His legs were fucking powerful, and he could and limber, and he could do a deep squat. 
Also, Moxley's legs were in the wrong place, guys. If you want to go back and look at the tape while I'm saying this, this is all the listeners out there, just talk amongst yourselves for a second. I'm talking to FTR. When you pick Moxley up for the bear hug to squat down and lean him out, his legs went around your back. I've mentioned this before. That's the wrong place. You need to have the guy up in a bear hug like you're going to hold him there for a while, the old spot where you hold the guy there, and he puts his shins, folds them up, and puts them on your thighs. Once you got the guy in the bear hug and his shins are folded up on your thighs, then you squat down as low as you can and lean the guy straight out. And that's why Stan's deep squat came in handy. Because then when Dax would come off with the leg drop, all Cash has to do is let go and Moxley lands flat, falls right out of his arms. Because Moxley's legs were around Cash's back, and then Cash didn't just drop him flat, but stumbled forward onto his knees because he doesn't have that deep squat. It kind of kerflucked it up there. And Cash should have been a couple of feet farther out and toward his back about a foot. So when Dax comes straight off, he's going straight with the leg drop toward the opposite turnbuckle because that's that straight line. That's when you know if you try to jump off with a leg drop a little bit toward the left side, you're getting off and the momentum's changing. Does this make any sense verbally to you, Brian Last? Absolutely. This is great stuff. I love when you give advice. So, well, it's not advice. I invented the goddamn thing. It's not advice. It's just telling you. This is not a fucking debatable thing. This is how you do the fucking thing, and that's how it works out. Instead, like I said, legs around the back. It brought both of them forward. Cash stumbled, positioning, whatever, but they were trying. Then Dax missed the elbow off the top rope and Moxley clotheslined Cash and hit a shitty hot tag because the heels were tagging too almost simultaneously. He didn't lay there and sell and let the fucking heels tag so the fresh heel comes in and tries to go after him and then he evades that guy and then both the heels are in when he tags, dives and tags Punk so that Punk can come in and both the heels are ready to feed. But it was a simultaneous tag, and I give up on hot tags. The people popped anyway because it was Punk, and this set of heat had lasted a while, but I'm tired of trying to advise people on how to do a hot tag when nobody is getting it anymore. And it's fucking ridiculous. Having said that, Punk made a comeback while still selling his leg from the brief heat from earlier, and it was great. Because now you'd, okay, we know why the guy's not just 100% now. And then they even did a doomsday device, Punk and Moxley, which it was, it was a two count, but they, they got it in. Here's another thing. Cash gives Moxley a spinning DDT on the floor. <laughs> and he's, he's going to be back up in a second. You can't kill Moxley. Uh, they hit Punk with the bell and a brain buster and got a two count. Then they got more heat on Punk and hit the big rig on him, but Moxley saved. Then everybody's selling. And we got the double one-two in the ring with all four guys. This has been a good tag match, except for the Picadillos that I've just picked out. This is far and away one of Moxley's best matches he's ever had because they weren't fighting on the floor. There wasn't all the goddamn plunder in the ring. He was actually wrestling. And they gave him time so that they could do what they need to do without rushing through it, and there was no trampoline business going on. I'm 
picking at nits because if it was the grade schoolers and the pudding gang out there, I wouldn't give a shit because they're hopeless. But since these guys, except for Moxley, are all top fucking guys and some of the best in the world at what they do, I'm giving constructive criticism. So it was a great match up to that point, especially for AEW, because there was more professionalism than normal. And then everything started going sideways when poor Tully got in the ring. Oof. Because Punk gets a submission on cash, and the referee, Aubrey, is with the other two guys, and Tully rolls in, takes his suit jacket off, and starts swinging and swatting Punk with his suit jacket. He didn't just do it once to distract him. He does it several times. And I'm... I'm at a loss. If 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 Punk has a submission hold on my guy, the referee's back is turned and the referee's busy with the other people in the match, and I'm the manager, wouldn't I come in and haul off and football kick Punk straight in the face to get him to let go of my fucking guy? Or would I take off my jacket and swat him in the head with it? I don't know what this was supposed to be because, yes, Punk let go of the hold and stood up and there Aubrey turns around and there's Aubrey is standing there staring at Tully in the ring, staring at punk. So why did they distract the referee for her to just turn around and see the manager still in the ring? And then punk goes to pick Tully up for, well, Tully swings, punk blocks punch and goes to pick him up in the fireman's carry for the GTS. But did you see what went wrong? I'm sure you could pick it apart from what actually went wrong, but I obviously I saw what happened where he okay. he shouldn't have, I mean, they shouldn't have done this to begin with, but whatever. <sighs> well, what happened was when Punk been, blocked the punch and went to Fireman's Carry Tully and pick him up for the go to sleep, Tully has not been picked up in a while. And he was so, and you you guys, you can all go back and watch the video. This is exactly what it was. Tully hadn't been picked up in a while. I'm sure he was eager to show that he still got it. When Punk bent over, Tully jumped before Punk was lifting. So what the effect that that has, and you can see this on the video, is that, and I don't care how strong you are, when you're off balance, this is going to happen. I've seen this happen to the road warriors before. When I bend over to, to pick the guy up over my shoulder at a fireman's carry, if I've just been over and he jumps up without me starting to lift first, then he's jumping in the air before I'm standing up. That means when I start standing up, he's coming down. Now I'm bent over. That means 200 plus pounds, whatever the fuck Tully weighs, is coming downwards on the back of my head before I've had a chance to get my legs under me and stand up, and it almost took fat Punk face first to the mat instead of him being able to pick Tully up. Well, then he realizes what has happened, and he has to. he's staggering, but he's trying to get under Tully because he's got to get his legs under him to pick him up because they're still off balance, and now Tully is holding on like a monkey fucking a football. And finally, he got up under him and gave Tully the go to sleep. 
but this, this is why I'm not managing either. Tully's almost 70. I'm 60. We don't need to be doing that shit. I mean, everybody wanted to see, you know, a legend when he's 40 or a legend when he's 50. But it comes a point, we talked about the Sheik earlier. We talk about what Vince McMahon looks like. It's not doing your, the memories that people have any favors when they see guys going out and being involved in, in these things. But anyway, so go to sleep on Tully. But right at that point, Cash rolls Punk up a two count. That might have it was a nice little false finish there, but then suddenly Punk and Moxley both <laughs> just spun FTR up and hit both their finishes on both Dax and Cash at the same time. It covers simultaneously one, two, three. They beat both of them right in the middle of the ring. So again, if FTR had come in and got the Keith Lee treatment, and got win after win on television a year and a half ago and established themselves as what they are, the best tag team in the business, and then won the championship, which they did, and then defeated the Young Bucks the first time around and made the Bucks chase for it. Then they would have been established. But instead, they come in, they get a couple of wins, they get the belts, they're mostly on YouTube, they get beat by the Young Bucks, the EVPs, then they turn heel, the Hardly boys do, to take FTR's place, and FTR never gets in the ring with them again because they were so jealous. I'm talking about the Hardly boys now. They were so jealous that a lot of people were saying FTR were the best in the world. They brought them in specifically to beat and bury them and then switch heel and take their spot. And then a year later, Every three months or so, we get to see FTR have a tag team match on television. In this case, the baby faces beat up their manager and pin both of them cleanly in the middle of the ring at the same time. Why didn't you piss in their mouths while they were down there? It's not Punk and Moxley's fault. FTR should already be over because they should have been booked properly. And then if they're a joy to work with. I'm sure everybody in the company wants to work with FTR because they know that they'll be taken care of and not get hurt and not have to go through foolish, silly cartoon bullshit. But it was a great tag team match, and Moxley was even bearable, and the finish would have been great if FTR had come in and gotten over or been pushed a year ago and now could do this and still keep their heat. But they didn't, and they weren't, so they can't. Closing thoughts on this match. I liked it. Good way to use Moxley. Keep him out of a singles match. Put him in there with Punk. Also, a minor thing, but I like the fact that they established that Punk isn't Mr. Popularity in the dressing room. Who's he going to get to be his partner? He's getting along with Sting and Darby. We know that relationship. It's played out on TV. He has put over Moxley. He did that promo when Moxley went to rehab, talking about Moxley. So it's established that he at least thinks about him and cares about him. So it makes sense that they would team up. I know it's a minor thing, but I like that when you stop and you think about it, Bill Watts style, how did these two get here? Why are yeah. they teaming up? It makes some sense. Tully shouldn't be. We've been saying it for months now. Tully shouldn't be a manager. He can't do a good promo anymore. He can't do anything physical anymore. It's almost like Jim Hurd knew. The abilities are gone. No, I was 33 I years know. Ago. I'm joking. I'm I joking. Know. 
Other than that, and with FTR, I'm happy we get to see them have matches. It is no coincidence that the guys who work with them end up having really well-thought-out matches that are good. I could do without the table spot in the middle of the match or even the ring bell, to be honest with you. But everyone knows what it is. They got hogan They got brought in by the guys looking to beat them just to shut internet fans up. Everyone knows what everyone knows what's up. And look, the only person that could change things is Tony Khan. And Tony Khan has, for whatever reason, been happy with the way FTR is booked. Go figure. Who knows? Well, no, but also he has he can't tell anybody what to do. He has no authority because he has no balls because he's not in charge. He's the boss. He pays everybody, but he's not in charge. If he was in charge, well, if he was in charge, it wouldn't probably be any better because he doesn't know what to do. But fortunately, he's not in charge. He can't tell anybody what to do because they won't listen to him because he's a fucking mark. That's why they need a fucking authority figure that knows what to do and that gives a shit enough to tell them. This is no way to talk about the future congressman from Florida. Well, boy, you know, maybe if he would run for office, then we could they could hire a booker. Uh, real briefly, the TBS title was on the line. At least they're on the right network. Jane Cargill versus Aqua. Did you see this? AQA. Yeah, Aqua. They found some girl that looks like they they kidnapped her out of a skateboard park with all the oh, fucking frilly things she was wearing. She looks like one of the girls that hangs out at the skateboard park doing the skateboarding. Some outfit on, and it, she looked like she'd never been in a ring before. This actually went through a break, and the, did, the whole thing fell apart. At the end, Aqua goes up the top, and Jane Cargill, I got to give it to her, she lays there motionless and lets this green girl do a what is it? The backflip is the shooting star. Shooting press, star right? press, correct. Shooting star press off the top rope and landed it perfectly. She has no basics whatsoever and is greener than chlorophyll, but she can do a shooting star press. And then she goes back up to the top because that's not the finish. Goes back up to the top, loses her balance, and just jumps down. Jane grabs her and shoots her off corner to corner. And she almost fell running into the far turnbuckles. Jane runs in and eats a boot and backs up for a spot, but Aqua can't remember what the spot is and just stood there. So Jane goes back into the corner and gets her, tells her what the spot is, sets her up on top of the turnbuckle, then backs up in the middle of the ring, and then fucking catches her on the crossbody coming off and hits her with a slam and one, two, three brother and then I, I don't even want to know what you thought of it i don't care because then hard the hardly boys and cole were talking in the back and they now look bigger and tougher than adam cole he is shrinking in front of our eyes and then they come back for another match it's a two girls matches back to back and this time it's serena deeb who actually is an outstanding talent in a five-minute challenge against Katie Arquette. And Serena's heel and beat this girl in like one minute. They give Jane and Aqua two segments to stink the joint out. Serena gets another green girl and only a minute to do what she can do. 
And that was the women's segment. I was almost ready to turn the thing off, but I realized, wait a minute, we got a Texas death match coming up. I thought so Serena Deeb was great. Well, she's great for a minute. Well, they're giving her some personality. They're giving her a little bit of mic time. They're giving they're her not, a little bit no, of No, they didn't give her any personality. She has it. Well, you know what I'm saying. They're and letting they, her display they, it. Yes. And yeah. she, did a good pro, she did a good promo, and she had a good 45-second match or whatever. But again, you know, it just... <sighs> Wait, is Mike Tanay of a lawsuit? Isn't Mike Tanay the professor? I said, well, it's going to be like a Ric Flair and Becky Lynch type of thing between Mike Tanay and Serena Deeb. I can see it coming. But anyway, I'm just saying, uh, number one, break up the girls' matches a little bit on your formatting. And number two, (laughs) it's a good bet you can always give Serena more time than you can give Jane. Except, I don't with these green opponents they're finding, uh, I don't think anybody's going to do much good. But anyway, the main event. Brian, remember when we heard this announced and we said, well, why is this a Texas death match for the world title? Adam Page has never wrestled Lance Archer before. There's no long-running rivalry that this ultimate blow-off match should be booked for. It just out of nowhere, they're having a Texas death match. And we, we mentioned how that really didn't make a lot of sense, right? Correct, yeah. Well, fortunately, they didn't have a Texas death match. They built it as such. They built it up that way for the people who might have been wanting to tune in and see a Texas death match. It would have been nice if we got one. We didn't get one. And that's I'm like, why did they even bother to call it a Texas death match and then not do a Texas death match? I, 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 they get old Sunshine Roberts in the ring, and he announces the rules of the Texas death match. And I wrote, and it's not a Texas death match. Here are the rules of the Texas death match. The only way to win is by knockout or submission. That was it. That's, that's, no, that is not, nor has that ever been a Texas death match. Why did they bait and switch at the last minute? Did they realize they didn't have time to, to do five or six or seven falls or something to make it palatable? Or do they are they not smart enough to, if they don't know the rules of the Texas death match, they are easily available to look up, or they could have just said, we're going to have another garbage death match, which is what this was. The same as every other garbage death match. No better, no worse, no different. Same shit, different people. There was no Texas death match involved. And they, all the other droning on of these long-winded promos on this show, and they leave enough time to where their main event world championship match starts in the back. They play Lance Archer's music, and they cut to a backstage camera, and they've already started fighting. And they rattle each other off the equipment cases, and then they fight through the entrance, and Paige throws Archer through a pane of glass. If you didn't see it the first time, folks, they're going to replay it, including the shot where conveniently there was a camera standing by behind the pane of glass so you could see the guy come through it. The fuck these fucking... 
I would have fired everybody in the goddamn, everybody on the television crew, everybody that set the building up. I would have fired the building manager. I would have fired the fans individually. So they finally get into the ring and Paige hits the buckshot lariat and Archer takes a bump to the floor and pulls out a garbage can lid. And when Paige does the dive, he hits Paige in the head with a garbage can lid and then hits him with it eight more times. Suddenly, here comes Dan Lambert, who comes out and unscrews the turnbuckle and takes the top rope off of the ring. Now, Jake Roberts is already out there with Archer. Lambert came out after they've got the deal going on with them. So now Archer and Paige go out and fight on the floor and out into the crowd. While Jake is wandering around, Archer's already bleeding from the going through the glass. This is every garbage death match that this promotion and every other promotion besides the WWF does every fucking week, every show. Um, you got a Texas death match that's not a Texas death match with no reason and no build to it that's now turned into every garbage outlaw match ever with a non-functioning ring so they can't work if they want to. And then we go to the break. After we come back from the break, we're back to a ring with no top rope, which also has a garbage can, two kendo sticks, and two tables set up outside with both guys fighting on the apron, teasing that they're going to fall through the table. Well, that might be exciting if we hadn't seen it 45 minutes ago. You fucking morons. You fucking imbeciles. You don't have a goddamn lick of common sense. You don't know how to structure anything. You're pathetic. You sleep in filth and you eat garbage. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I'm starting to get worked up. So now Archer pulls up the pads on the floor and Jake gives the short arm clothesline to Paige and manages not to fall over. But then Jake hooks Paige up for a DDT on the concrete floor that Archer has moved the pads, but Archer stops him and Jake turns around and gets hot. <laughs> And then Paige DDT's Archer on the concrete floor with no pads. But the match continues because that's not going to hurt anybody. Doesn't even make any sense in their own world that doesn't make sense. Then Paige gets one of the kendo sticks and just wears fucking Archer out. And there's, at this point, there's still five minutes left in the show. And Archer goes out and tosses four more chairs into the ring and then pulls out a chair wrapped in barbed wire from under the, because that was, I guess one of the fans said, Hey, I can't sit in this chair. It's wrapped in barbed wire. So they took that up and threw it under the ring. As soon as the chair wrapped in barbed wire came in and, and pages, I'm not mad at juice and a grudge match, but this is a garbage death outlaw match. Um, so I was done. It's hot garbage. Oh, you didn't see the fork. They used a fork. Oh, he went all Abdullah the Butcher, Lance Archer, stabbing violently quickly Paige in the head. And at that point, I said, oh, my God, I hope TBS isn't watching. And then they did a close-up of him licking the fork. Oh, well, good. So this, so what you're saying is in, in 10 years when another wrestling promoter wants to get on TBS, they will have the tape of this in their office, the program director, like I talked about the guy in Cincinnati having the Sheik's tape when Jerry Jarrett wanted to get television, and they'll say, no, this is why pro wrestling will never be on my fucking television station again. 
It's just, it's going to happen again in a few years, and they'll use this tape as the example. No, as soon as the barbed wire wrapped chair came out, I I can't take this anymore. I don't know why I've invested as much of my time in this. If you didn't see this every week and every promotion, it would get over. We talked about it with the Sheik. But now it's just, and actually it wouldn't get over like the Sheik did because at least his shit made sense in terms of he's trying to hurt other people instead of just do stunts for no reason. But this is Marks entertaining themselves with the imitating, you know, Abdullah the Butcher with the fork and doing all these spots and stunts. The Marks are in the ring now. The Marks are not in the seats. The Marks are in the ring and they're entertaining themselves and they're entertaining potentially their core audience that for whatever reason doesn't get tired of this shit over and over, but this is why the audience never grows. It'll be down to four or 500,000 on one of those rotten Friday night shows and it'll be up to 1.2 million when they tease that Shane McMahon may show up and it'll be somewhere in the middle every other time. And it's never going to grow with it. Who wants to watch this stupid shit? It doesn't mean anything. It makes no difference. It's obviously fucking phony. And the guys are really hurting themselves. All because they're all marks and they think that they're doing what the real stars 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and however many years ago did. They're not. They're out there doing stunts that don't make sense. And they're entertaining themselves and they're their Mark billionaire boy boss with garbage. So that was that match. I missed the fork. Who? I guess Page won. He had to, right? Or we'd have a new champion. Page won. He is still the champion. And if I could just say one final thought about the show, to focus on a positive. They teased Punk at the beginning. We got a payoff later in the show. Makes you want to tune back into the show later. If we tuned in last week, we got no update or anything about Brian Danielson. Moxley was where, out where there. Where is he, by the way? I have no idea. But last week, him and Moxley were going to put together a group, and Moxley was going to consider it, and this week, not one mention of him. Cody Rhodes, once again, a few weeks of Cody Rhodes, and then weeks of he's missing off TV, not even Brandy, to follow up on whatever it was that they were trying to do with Lambert and her last week. And Miro is just missing in action. Still lost in the void, the godless void, I guess. Now, yeah, and here's another thing: a lot of the AEW apologists are again going to say, "Well, you don't—they've got so much talent, they can't put everybody on television." You don't understand because you've never written television, you idiots out there saying that because you're all goddamn morons. You don't have something happen and then never refer to it again on your television program, or don't refer to it again for the next six weeks. There's all kinds of ways that you don't have to have everybody out there doing a live interview. You don't have to have everybody wrestle every week. But you could replace some of these inane job guy backstage segments with Tony Schiavone or the fake girls fights that they have in the back or the the fake fights among men like the Hardly Boys that look like fight like girls. Knock out all of those fake backstage segments and do updates on your issues with the people that are not appearing live on the program. And in next week, those people can appear live and you can do some video updates 
on some of the people that was live on this week's program, but you keep your stars constantly appearing because that's how they get over and you minimize the time that people like the pudding gang and the mascots and the job girls take up on your program because that's useless and counterproductive and nobody gives two shits whether Jane Cargill beats Aqua in 90 seconds or 10 minutes except the viewers they'd rather the 90 seconds because that way there wouldn't be time for so many fuck-ups but he's all over the place he's got ADD he doesn't know how to do this because he never has to begin with and nobody apparently can tell him that so you've got a goddamn mess and you have a bunch of people doing whatever they want to do and the talented people what they want to do is good and the goofy outlaw people what they want to do is the shits so this shows all over the fucking page and they cannot get their shit together to save their life and here is vince mcmahon and everybody working for him trying to hand them the victory in this promotional war here take all the talent you want here we're gonna piss our fans off as much as possible make them hate us and pull for you even more here we're gonna do all this stuff for you they can't take advantage of it holy shit but seriously going back to my question you could talk about the problems and why it doesn't happen is there any good reason i mean miro's kind of been in the void for a while so we don't know if he'll ever come back to reality but brandy and cody Nothing is followed up on. I didn't answer your question because I don't know the answer because it doesn't make sense to people with functioning brains and logic and common sense. It's just, it, it, he's, you know, he's playing with his action figures, booking them in his basement like he was when he was a teenager. And his father was only worth $750 million instead of $3 billion or whatever the fuck. Now he can buy his own action figures and he has, again, this could have been a transformative promotion in the wrestling industry. This could have set wrestling back on a path of being a competitive-looking sport and given guys that needed an opportunity a place to go and competed with Vince McMahon on the national television, etc. And what it is is a giant circle jerk for marks that don't understand the wrestling business and think that they're stars and the biggest mark is the kid that's paying for everything that insists on running it himself, even though he's never done it and has no experience and obviously can't figure it out and either won't take advice or nobody's got the balls to tell him. It's a fucking mess. And now that it's not just a joke, now that there's real talent there, now they've got CM Punk, they got MJF, they've got fucking Brian Danielson, they've got several top quality talents on that roster it's even more offensive to me that he's still doing this indie looking outlaw bullshit instead of really getting their shit together and trying to hire a booker establish a better training system dump the fucking dreck off that roster fire the goddamn asses right now they have milked you for enough money over the last two plus years these outlaw fucks that nobody wanted to book to goddamn walk a dog. Sonny Kiss. Cut them. Get them out of there. Weed it out. Find somebody to fucking book or a committee 
of experienced people to book for you. Jim Ross is involved there. I he, What am I saying? He don't want to be involved in this thing probably at all anymore. Uh, but somebody with some experience that tells these guys what to fucking do and how to do it and where to get off if they don't do it and concentrate on top talent, run a real professional fucking show. Not a goddamn, hey, kids, let's put on a show in our local barn. It's Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. And we'll let everybody play. Fuck you. I'm getting sick of this. They got a chance to really do something here, and they cannot wind their watch or scratch their ass to do it. That's all I've got to say on it. I'm just pissed. That was AEW Dynamite. Anyway, we'll see what happens next week. And uh, speaking of next week on the drive-thru which we're doing in about 36 hours. Um, We will see if SmackDown and Rampage has anything uh, interesting on it, plus some more questions from the audience and songs and all kinds of joy and frivolity, and then we'll be back here next week for me to bitch these people again because they, I guarantee you they ain't going to figure it out between now and next week. You never know. Every now, I'm not saying they're going to figure it out, but every now and then they have that one episode. It's like, wow, they got it all right. Let's see what they do next week. And then it falls off a cliff again. I've come to the conclusion those are the accidental ones. Anyway. All right. We are done, folks. Thanks for hanging out with us. And we'll be back on the drive-thru and the experience. Don't forget to visit the new JimCornette.com and the newly opened Cornette's Collectible Store. Hopefully that will be the case. I'm speaking again of things that have not happened yet, but they will by the time you hear this. And uh, otherwise than that, for Brian... I am indeed Jim, and thank you, fuck that show, and bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey, Mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Oh,
Wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corgi, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or him. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Scott the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? No. Did you choose the Wi-Fi password? Mom! Oh, no! Wednesday nights I get to stay up late what can you make a while I masturbate? Hey, mom, I need to watch this show. Elter says I'm in the key demo. I am 39, I'm in the key demo. I'm a single. 